does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. We've joked for a long time that it feels like some aspects of the Indianapolis Colts are a part of the whose line is it anyway game show in that everything's made up and the points don't matter. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd here on the <laughs> Fan Midday Show. And it would appear not just with the Colts, but league-wide, at least the last couple of seasons and now especially now, at least per an article on Pro Football Talk, that not only... Is it personnel moves that are just there and you accept it for what it is and you move about your day? It's also the depth chart now. I joked with Eddie about this to begin the show. <laughs> like I, I'm not, I'm not frustrated with this because it's a, it's a form of gazemanship, not showing your hand. If you want to go as far as to keep everybody happy, I, I wouldn't go that far. But what I'm referring to is the Colts depth chart heading into preseason opener this weekend against the Buffalo Bills. You would think maybe there's more tea leaves to read there. We can see who's number one on the depth chart, who's number two, doesn't mean anything. Well, we're not going to get the answer to that because of a fine word that's or. It's a beautiful, beautiful word that can help leave things ambiguous or give you options, you would think. That is the phrasing that we have on QB1 conversation heading into Bill's Colts, and that is Anthony Richardson or Gardner Minshew, top of the depth chart. Eddie and I joke, James, probably a nothing burger. And the Pro Football Talk article references other QB competitions around the league that have a same outlook of their depth chart going in with that word or in there. But par for the course at a minimum for what this entire offseason has been. Absolutely. I looked at it and just laughed. I was like, okay, this is pointless. <laughs> I could have told you this myself. But good on the Colts, I guess, for not revealing their hand. Not that it really matters at this point to me at all. But I do know that whenever they – announce QB1 they want to make sure that all of it is you know lockstep and in tune with what they believe and so I understand it first preseason game you probably haven't made a decision just yet at least not externally but yeah that aura was annoying and then also JT being listed as running back one Zach Moss is running back too. It's like, all right, like this is are you guys just trolling us or what's going on here because I mean obviously Zach Moss would be Ideally, the the running back in place of JT, but he broke his arm. JT would ideally be the starting running back, but he's not, you know, around. So, yes, very weird depth chart. I looked at it, and honestly, I was like, let me just look at the cornerbacks. Maybe that's more revealing than anything else. Got Daryl Baker Jr. and Dallas Flowers on the outside. But, again, those aren't the guys you're looking for, immediately at least, when you're looking at the depth chart. The other quarterback competitions around the league that have referenced it, again, this from an article, on Pro Football Talk and NBCSports.com, Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask's starting quarterback competition in Tampa Bay features that. And or, then or. got to have that or word in there. And then for the 49ers, apparently with their backup quarterback competition, Sam Darnold or <laughs> I saw Lance. that and I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like You need to just you know pick somebody, please. Even if you don't adhere to it during the game, like why is there an or for a backup quarterback? But, I mean, I guess it kind of speaks to how much scrutiny quarterbacks are under and how every decision you make with them catches more eyes than anything else. I think that's true of the NFL probably more than any other league. 
Like you don't worry about who the backup point guard is in the NBA or the backup center or whatever. But like the backup quarterback actually draws headlines in the NFL because it's obviously one play away from him being in there. So um, again, annoyed, but I understand it. How about the podium effect of this though? In in racing or in other areas where you have a tie, usually you have first first. And then second is skipped because you have two names right. there and it goes straight to third. Poor Sam, he's sitting back there definitively the third string <laughs> on the depth chart. There's no there's no competition there for him. I know. <laughs> and Sam, to my knowledge, is the only guy who's recently started for the Colts, so that he should get his shot and no, I'm joking. <laughs> I do think it's a two horse race. Yeah. But I mean We'll probably get a chance to talk to the quarterbacks tomorrow, their last practice before Saturday's preseason opener, and I'm sure someone will ask who's the starter. And none none of them will answer because they probably shouldn't, but probably worth asking, like, hey, who's starting? And I'm sure we're probably going to get a wry smile of somebody who says they don't know and they do. But all jokes aside, I have leaned more and more towards Anthony Richardson probably in this last week and a half than I have at any point this offseason. Because I feel like Gardner's kind of tapered off. He is who he is. He does no downfield throwing at all. He's more accurate than Anthony Richardson. But Richardson provides every dynamic play in practice. So I'm like, if that's the balance you're weighing, put the young guy in there from week one or preseason one, wherever. Put him in there first. Make him QB1. You know, save all of us the madness and roll with it. Because right now they're still splitting reps. I know yesterday Gardner got all the first-team reps and Anthony Richardson got the twos, and he wasn't all that great yesterday. But, again, wild plays come from him. Gardner Minshew's more dink and dunk. And at this point, it's like you saw that last year, and you don't want to see that again if you're the Colts. Is this a key bar for you heading into this weekend? Throw the depth charts aside, but we've – talked in different ways about not just reading tea leaves but finally being able to see on field action that truly matters and by truly matters i mean training camp among other things for a lot of guys oh, every is day matters it, ma- it matters every but, day matters but, but, <laughs> one day at a time iron sharpens iron i could throw every cliche at you i've heard in the last week and a half or you could go on a list of uh, of game of thrones uh, lines too and it would probably go around the same way but It's an audition that is actively going on every single day, but a lot of it is still evaluations that aren't public yet, that aren't on full display like it is in the kid gloves coming off in a joint practice or when preseason arrives, even though for a lot of people and the preseason games don't really matter. Well, they probably don't matter for your clear cut number ones, but we know there's a lot of guys in the league where whether it's guys in the margins or guys fighting for a second or third spot or just to make a team in general, that's life or death for them. That, that is a real battleground. So I, I, I lead into that to say, throw the or on the depth chart out of this equation. You mentioned that they've split rep counts variable times the last five, six, seven days. What does that rep count need to look like for you, for you to have a clearer picture in your mind post preseason game one? You want to have a definitive answer, but you're like, this is clearly leaning this way one game through. Play Anthony Richardson the entire game. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I think you play him probably like a, I, in all seriousness. I know you, in my mind, you play him at least one full quarter. Yeah. I'd probably lean more towards a half just because I don't think he'll play much 
in the second or the last two preseason games because of the joint practices with Chicago and Philly. Doesn't make much sense to go, you know, super hard in those joint practices and then go right back out there a couple days later and play an actual game because they're going to get a lot of game reps and live reps in those practices. Obviously, you're not going to hit the quarterback. It's the only thing that's going to be different. But I think you go out and play Anthony Richardson in full half and you play Gardner Minshew maybe a quarter and give Sam some time. But to me, Gardner Minshew would have to be like lights out for me to be okay, maybe I'll consider him being QB1, but it just hasn't been the case. They've been about even because of the reasons I stated, where one's more consistent just as far as accuracy and completions, but the other one pushes the ball downfield, has the dynamic plays, has the run capability, things like that. And then that's probably what I'm leaning more towards to evaluating in a live game is how much does Anthony Richardson's running ability change the landscape of the offense? Because in practice... We'll see like these little uh, practice refs and they'll mark him short or mark him that he got a first down. And we're all like, would he have gotten that? Would he not have gotten that yeah. in a real game? So we'll get a lot of those questions answered. I think they have to be you know, cautious with putting him in situations where he could get potentially hit. But I'd say you play him at least a half. That's, that's my personal preference. And you kind of see how he handles – an NFL style defense. Now, granted, it won't be against like all ones. I'm sure Buffalo's, you know, number ones won't be out there for the entire game on defense and things like that. However, the players he's going up against are still going to be better than the ones he saw in the SEC, period. Because all these guys, even the fringe guys trying to make a roster, were probably the man wherever they came from, wherever college they came from. So um, I'm excited to see that. And then to finally have some actual data or video to assess as an entire group. Because I can come in here every couple of days and the last few times I've been in here and tell you, hey, Jimmy, he had this great throw on this. And it's like, oh, yeah, but like you haven't seen it. So yeah. now we all get to see it, for better or worse, and we get to understand with our own eyes what we're uh, witnessing. And so I'm excited about that. I'm in the same boat as you. I would like to see a half of Anthony Richardson. It does not bother me where that half occurs or if he is the first quarterback under center first snap of the preseason game. If they decide to give it to Minshew, okay, whatever, that's fine. It's more about grading Anthony Richardson, taking into account if he's playing against twos or around twos, for instance, you know, along the offensive line or, or, or who is out there with him from an offensive package standpoint, like that matters. You have to take that into account with how he is adapting to, you know, not the, what we hope is a leap forward back to, where the offensive line was in the past. If he's not there with the ones, maybe things modify to a chance. Maybe he's having to scramble more than he would have with the ones. All of that has to be factored in, but I just want to see him out there because the main mark against him is the lack of reps. And it's this weird paradox. Like I mentioned this on Monday, you're applying for a job (laughs) and they've set the requirements on the job experience in that same job or a job like that. And it's like, okay, well, I need to find another job where I get experience like that. But that job also wants you to have experience yep, yep. like that. <laughs> and, and there's no way to get that experience without actually getting the job. And with Anthony Richardson, that's the boat he's in right now. The critical mark against him is, well, look at the lack of reps that he's had in college and right. look at the inexperience that he's going to have when he's under center. And maybe we should sit him to start. And I think there's some logic to that if it's clear he's lost he's drowning if he's in a world where he is definitely not ready 
But outside of that, the solution to lack of reps is to give him reps. Like that that's not a <laughs> it's not a hard equation yeah, for no, me. I completely agree. And it's actually funny you brought this up because Maybe my mom told me this, but she's like, hey, when you're applying for these jobs in your career, <laughs> if you have like 60% of the requirements, apply. Yep. Yes. And that's basically what he's going through because you're not going to get this experience anywhere else. Nope. And what better time to get it than in preseason where you can, again, not only see his upside, but see sort of the downside or the uh, mistakes he's going to make inevitably. So if he throws a pick or something like yeah. that. Why not get out your system now? I'm not saying he's going to go the entire season without throwing a pick, but, I mean, throw a few now or whatever to at least understand and build from that. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Exactly, rather than, like, he doesn't play at all or whatever during preseason. It's like, all right, go out there week one and be the guy, which would never happen. But I'm just saying, in theory, that would be a horrible approach. So I think playing him early, playing him as much as you can, within reason, obviously you have to factor in the injury risk. Don't have him out there too long, but – I mean, for a guy that's 21 and hasn't started back-to-back seasons at quarterback since he was in high school, since he was in high school, play him. And again, you for better or worse, you know what you have with Gardner Minshew. I was having a conversation with guys in the media room the other day, and it's like, no offense to him, but you know what you have. Yeah. Whether you play him, don't play him, or whatever, you know what you have because you have five years worth of data and video and tape to back it up. With Anthony Richardson, you don't. So play him. And I think the biggest thing, even beyond just the experience, is the confidence, too. He's a very confident guy, but I'm sure playing and having a little bit of success out there in preseason can only help him gain more confidence. When you look around any office building or any building anywhere, you see the Blake, the, the break glass in case of emergency <laughs> sign, and you feel confident with what's in there. You, you know what, whether it's a fire extinguisher, whether it's an axe, whatever it is, you're confident with what is in there. That is Gardner Minshew. You you know he's there if you need him. You're not needing to a to, to re-see a full body of work for him exactly. for what he is, especially Shane Steichen, who has already worked with him a Bingo. full season last Bingo. year in Philadelphia. So I, I totally agree with you there. The other area that is interesting to me is ordinarily, and you mentioned this earlier, the preseason as you go along used to be that fourth preseason game or the third preseason game was a dress rehearsal because the fourth was like, all right, this is for like margins, position yep. battles, but this Bottom third one's where guys. we're really going to maybe throw some stuff out there we might do in the regular season and have a full series or a full quarter with the ones, right. and okay, we're ready for week one. That has largely been faded out now. There's no clear-cut dress rehearsal anymore because of the, a couple years ago, dropping from four preseason games to three preseason games. And another fallout of that has been teams, as you mentioned, more and more concerned with how long do we play guys that are week one starters for risk of injury. But the unique thing with Anthony Richardson is I would almost be tempted, again, like you said, be careful because you don't want to have an injury happen to him. But I would almost be tempted to Anthony Richardson needs to appear, doesn't need, but I would want him to appear in every preseason game for the exact reason that we've called against him, which is lack of reps. I know it's not the same as week one, but I want in-game experience over consecutive weeks for him in some capacity as long as he's healthy and able to do it and as long as there's no real concern regarding his health moving forward. You can't prevent every injury on a football field. We've seen that when there's non-contacts in training camp, right? Sometimes it just happens. 
but I almost want to see him in every preseason game unless he straight up blows people away because it's free. It is free reps. It is free reps with no real consequences in terms of what the regular season holds. Do, do you view the same way? If you saw him participate in all three preseason games, uh, whether it's a series, a quarter, whatever, that to me is beneficial solely based on the fact that you want to get him in a routine and it is, again, free reps that you're not going to be able to replicate until the games really matter. Do you view it that way, or do you think they should take a more cautious approach with, okay, maybe one or two preseason games, but he doesn't need to be out there for all three? I think the reason why I might not lean towards all three is because the, the last one's like on a Thursday or whatever, and it's kind of a weird That's day. Fair. Yeah. So it's like, would you turn right back around after having a couple of hard training camp practices, joint practices, and then throw him out there in a, good like a real game. Yeah. That's my only kind of pushback. But I do think that if there's – even if it isn't like a quarter or half limit, just a play limit, mm-hmm. like we'll get him out there for 20 plays, whenever those 20 plays come, whether it's a bunch of three and outs or if it's, you know, a couple extended drives, but just once he hits the 20-play mark, you know, we let him finish whatever drive he's on, maybe. But even then, if we just yank him out 20 plays, that's probably better than like – not giving him any experience. I don't think they can afford to be that cautious with him just because, again, the risk to me does not outweigh the reward at all. It's not even close because if he gets more comfortable because of these preseason snaps, I mean, the payout is immense Mm -hmm. and it's much better than, you know, being too cautious and having a healthy Anthony Richardson, but one that hasn't seen a live NFL defense and know to really know what he's getting into. So um, will he know it all by week one, day one? No, but the goal is to essentially throw as much as you can at him throughout preseason and see how he kind of bounces back from that and build on it going forward. The other news item that came across the timelines yesterday, and we had said this at the end of the show when Greg Rakestraw was in here, and he asked me, was there anything that we had missed and it was a report on ESPN.com from Diana Rossini that Kareem Hunt was expected to sign with the New Orleans Saints. But not so fast. Ending a physical. And very much Lee Corso S. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> Enter the Colts. And Diana quote tweets a report mentioning that the Colts are now involved in the conversation and the proceedings for Kareem Hunt. Not only that, she had tweeted yesterday that Hunt was called by Indy before he even stepped foot on the field to work out for the Saints. It was offered more money, that per her source. He was advised to leave and head to Indy with the Colts for a visit. Now, a subsequent report as well, it should be noted, and and I want to get James' perspective as well on this as a member of the Colts beat, but Stephen Holder of ESPN.com had mentioned about a half hour ago that there's no official word to this point on Kareem Hunt. He had referenced, though, to Colts fans that he, it's his understanding that there is additional running backs potentially in the mix for depth consideration because of how thin this team is. Is JT in that mix for depth? <laughs> Haven't seen him. I, I don't think so. Uh, given the, the continuation of this tweet, reminds us that JT's on the pup. Zach oh. Moss broke his arm. Deion Jackson was out on Tuesday. He highlights it as going to be the, this is from Steven, going to be the Evan Hole show in the preseason you know against Buffalo, I imagine. Jokes aside, when we talk to Shane Steichen, we only get a certain amount of questions, right? Yeah. And I need to make a pact with the other reporters that we'd only waste one question on injuries because we get like two or three questions on like certain guys that are out. You know, update on JT? No. Okay. 
What about Rodney Thomas? Toe. What about this guy? It's his back. So we didn't get a chance to ask Deion Jackson, but yeah. from the looks of it now, we'll get more clarity on this tomorrow. I'll make sure to ask it myself. Somebody else doesn't. Like, what's his? What's going on with him? Because to me, this could be a potential sign that it's a, it's a significant injury. Because remember when they signed like a bunch of tight ends one day, mm-hmm. and we were all like, "Why are they signing so many tight ends?" And then I get to practice, and Mo Ali Cox has a boot on his right ankle. Jelani Woods is still out. So I'm like, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. They signed two tight ends to basically have camp bodies. This could be one of those situations, but it feels more significant just given Kareem Hunt's level of success in the NFL. Now, obviously, we know 2018, the assault and all that, and he was punished for it. Now they're well aware of it, obviously, and you can have your opinions on that. But from a football standpoint, he, to me, is not just a camp body. No, absolutely like, not. He is good enough to help pretty much any team in the NFL, and which is why, according to you know Dan's report, the Colts are offering him a decent amount of money to come play for them. Now, to me, the rest of it would have to be figured out as far as, like, okay, what does the rest of the room look like? Because you just brought in Kenyon Drake. He talks like a guy who's going to be here all season. He's like, hey, I'm here, ready to contribute, and he has proven that he can contribute, you know, as a viable option in the NFL, JT, hold out, hold in, ankle, no ankle, whatever the case may be, he's still your guy for now. You get, like I said, Deion Jackson, Evan Hull. So, I mean, how many guys can you bring in and then how many do you have to say goodbye to or move on from? Because, and I don't say like goodbye, like forever. I mean, how many are you going to place on like your practice squad? Because how many running backs are you really realistically going to carry throughout the season? You can't carry seven of them. So... Assuming Zach Moss is healthy by first week, second week of the season, you got Zach Moss. If they sign Kareem Hunt, that's two there who are serviceable running backs. Kenyon Drake, that's three. JT, if he looks at the CBA as well as I have and realizes there's not much options and plays, that's four. It's not including your running backs. You drafted Evan Hull. So, I mean, it's crowded, so it does seem like it's obviously a health factor in there, but I'm also thinking to myself, again, Kareem Hunt was not brought in or not at least being brought in to, as a, for a visit to say, hey, we need you for a couple of weeks, buddy, and then we're going to say goodbye. There's so much with Hunt to unpack. First off, and again, this is one of those issues, or this is one of those situations where I guess it, it helps as a Chiefs fan to have some perspective on this. Uh, when he came into the league, he sort of set it on fire to some extent in terms of just how electric that he was within Kansas City's offense. That at the time was when Alex Smith was under center and and it looked like, because for the longest time, we won't go fully down a Chiefs history ranks, no one cares, but they're a franchise that knows how to find good running backs. Like It's well documented over their history. They have had strong to elite caliber running backs. Look like Kareem Hunt was going to be the next one. Dennis James mentions um, in 2018, a video came out of him assaulting a woman uh, in a hotel. I can't remember if it was in Cleveland or Vegas or where it was, but it came out and he had been immediately released by the Chiefs after that happened. And the reason they cited was he was untrustworthy to them or, or not truthful to them about what had happened, basically indicating that Hunt's story did not match what the video showed. Yep. And it was one of those things where we look. You lied to us, basically. We, we can we can maybe bridge a gap if like you're fully forthcoming with us, but the fact you lied to us, we're done. He ends up in Cleveland. Um, I believe he served a suspension. I'll have to double-check that, but I believe he missed some games initially because of the assault and what had happened. Then he is second fiddle to Nick Chubb, but they have this kind of thunder and lightning thing where it's like, wow, this is a great combination of running backs, 
And eventually that relationship soured to the point where Hunt wanted out. He requested a number of trades, uh, two trade requests following breakdown of extension talks, and then was ultimately allowed to pursue free agency and is yet to sign anywhere right now. The two unique things about Hunt's situation are he's 28 years old, which, again, I get it. Who knows what the running back age so really ancient. is anymore. For some, he's that's a fossil. Ancient. For some, that is that is in the, in the twilight of, <laughs> of a prime. Last year was not good for him. Last year was horrific for the Browns across the board, especially not good for Hunt. 123 carries, three touchdowns, about 470 yards, career worst 3.8 yards per carry. It was not, not great for him. He primarily was the team's pass-catching back, which was what he was utilized a ton in Kansas City. Yep. He, he's a running back that can do both. It's interesting to me why New Orleans would intrigue him outside of the fact that Alvin Kamara is going to be out for the first six games, but he's inevitably coming back. And that's not an area where, oh yeah, Hunt is now the starting running back permanently. Kamara's going to take him back and it's another timeshare. Here in Indy, the same thing is kind of lingering where JT comes back, it's probably a timeshare. But he does something that Kamara doesn't, or he does something that JT doesn't, that Kamara does, meaning the Saints playing time could falter. It might increase here in Indy, which he's a pass catching back. Yep. So maybe it makes more sense and money talks to come to Indianapolis. I've been saying for weeks, what if the Colts go the veteran route, a real veteran, not like a camp body or a depth piece like Kenyon Drake, a real veteran, Kareem Hunt could be that. Yeah, and also he would add to, like you said, just your third down options. Yes. JT is a very, very, very good running back, but he isn't necessarily a three-down running back. He doesn't give you the same threat if he's asked to be a pass catcher, which Kareem Hunt has proven throughout his career he can be really good at. So that's definitely a factor in the decision to pick him up. But at the same time, it just adds to the overall mystery of JT. You know, he's he was present at the first eight Training camp practices, you know, we were all picking out which hoodie he was wearing each day, blue or black, and <laughs> didn't show up yesterday. And Shane Steichen knew, because he kind of had not talked about JT for a while, but he knew he would have to address him at some point if he's just not there. I'm like, that's obviously alarming or, or going to send some some uh, shocks through the system. But he addressed it, said he was not there. He declined to say whether he was onside or offside, I know Holder reported that he's offside, which, I mean, duh. I'm like, the guy's not here. So, I mean, <laughs> unless he's in some, like, back room where, like, there's no lights or something, obviously he's not here. He's um, in a bunker. Yeah, that was a bit weird. But even just being away from the team is unique. Yeah. Like, okay, why now? Why why not at the start? Um, again, if this really is the ankle, how serious is it? If it really isn't the ankle – what's the next step in this standoff? Because it's not like any of us have reported like, oh, he's rescinded his trade request and he's just going to get riding and get ready for the season. He has never indicated not once since the trade request became public that he wants to play or he's willing to play for the Colts at all. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Shane Sykin was asked, hey, do you expect him to practice this training camp? And he goes, you know, I'd like to see it. I'm thinking to myself, well, yes, a lot of people would like to see a lot of things. I would like to marry Rihanna. It's not going to happen. So my point is... There's still time. 
Oh, man. Out of my league. <laughs> you know, maybe if one day if I just wake up and have a lot of musical talent, I'll, you know, be in that realm in those same spaces. But no, she's not going to know who I am. But it's okay. Rihanna, I love you. But with JT, again, the I would like statement was kind of like just hedging his bets. Like, yes, yeah. he would like to have him there, but there's no guarantee with him. And again, he just hasn't talked. We haven't heard from JT since June. It is August now. And the season is fast. It's not like the, the first game is moving further away. It's coming closer. <laughs> so it's like at some point, when is he going to be back? If he's going to be back. And if he is going to be back, is he going to practice at all during the preseason? We're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to revisit that conversation with Kareem Hunt, Jonathan Taylor, how things might be impacted and why I think it's the perfect signing to cover a lot of ground if it does wind up happening. And that's not official yet. If it does break throughout the show today, we will definitely report it to you. But when we Don't return, let that happen throughout the show. <laughs> after 3 p.m. and I'm good. <laughs> if you look on the YouTube chat, you see James dive for a book bag, or a book bag you know what's happened. But we're going to take a quick time out. When we return, we'll keep it Colts, but we'll take a trip up north. It's a conversation with Alec Lewis. He covers the Minnesota Vikings for The Athletic, but he had a national piece just last week regarding quarterback development and why it matters and how it's impacted a potential future starter. Maybe even week one, perhaps, for Indianapolis Colts. We'll get into that with Alec Lewis of The Athletic when we return on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Fan Midday Show, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison, Behind the Ones and Twos. Hope you're enjoying your Wednesday afternoon, wherever you may be listening to us. Good to have James Boyd back in studio, a day away from Colts camp. Is that a... I know you're contractually obligated to say, no, Jimmy, I love every second of it. Every second matters. What does Devin ever die? All that good stuff. But uh, is this is this a nice break for you to to not be in the uh, uh, I guess it's a nice day outside today, but not in the hot climate of of Grand Park and be here with us? Yes, I will say that. But I actually don't mind going out there and doing the uh, outdoor practices. Those are the ones I actually enjoy. I just don't like when we have to go indoor. Really? Indoor, I feel like I'm like so confined and I can't get my steps in and stuff. It's like, it's like a, I guess a health value benefit to being outdoors, I guess. So I don't mind it at all, actually. Follow-up question that, does the bucket hat, for those that don't know, James told us that he, he tried to be on top of his game and focus completely this training camp because he didn't want to get sunburned or anything. He was he was a, not a vet now, but he was a second year man on the beat. He knew what he was doing. Well, with the bucket hat, does the bucket hat stay on inside? It did a couple of times. I was going to say because maybe you, maybe that's why you don't like the inside practices because you don't wear the bucket hat. And no, you, you no, just, no, no, no. You no. miss the connection you have. With There's it. a reason for that too because when we go inside, it's usually raining, so the bucket hat mm-hmm. shields you from the rain. Okay, very versatile. It is. I almost, the bu- I almost wore it today, but I was like, you know what? I don't want to be that guy wearing a bucket hat indoors. But I almost did it. We would have appreciated it if you did it. I know. I still got to put my poll out to see who uh, wants to support my endeavors to wear an IU bucket hat. So uh, I think we have what, like five home practices. You run out of time. left. So you run out of time to the point that if you were to go out and get one yourself, would it actually be worth the investment for what's left? Because let's be honest, you, you could. Oh, it would just be a, a, a troll. It's thing. a, a one day troll thing. You're not going to yeah. be breaking that out. I don't know though. If it's quality, I probably would. Right. <laughs> so. Man, 
Because I'll be honest, I would, uh, I guess that's where I draw the line in the sand. If it was an orange Illinois bucket hat, I might do it for the troll move, but I don't know that I'd be keeping it in the arsenal for the rest of the year. I told somebody I, this I, the actually, other day. Actually, I do know I wouldn't do it for the rest of the year. I told someone this the other day, Jimmy, that I obviously enjoy where I went to school, but Illinois is the reason I'm in debt. Indiana is not. <laughs> so my allegiance to... Illinois is not as strong as you think it would be. <laughs> and that's a true statement. M- money talks in a lot of ways. Yeah, there it you go. Especially there you do go. So there. Indiana has Understand. never wronged my pocketbook. So there you go. Ha- has Illinois hit you with, I'm sure they have, have they hit you with the, hey, can you give? Yeah. Can you some money? Yeah, absolutely. Can you give, please? And I was thinking please you're give. absolutely delusional. <laughs> um, I, and I tell them every time I am giving when I pay my student loans. Exactly. So, yeah. I'm uh, giving back with a smile on my face. Well, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a setup there where you're going to get money from me all the time. You're welcome. Thank you. And then in return, I'm going to ask them for revenue when it comes to, you know, uh, conference shifting and realignment. Like, yeah, let me get in some of that TV deal money and we'll call it even. Hey, that sounds like a fair trade off to me. <laughs> I, I wish you good luck in those negotiations. Time zones are a weird thing. We'll have a conversation potentially with Alec Lewis maybe a little bit later in the show. Obviously, they're on Central Time, so now we're behind us. So we'll see if we can't get him. But he had an interesting piece on The Athletic regarding the way that the non-padded production happens, growth, training happens for quarterbacks, how they take care of their bodies, the physical regiment they put themselves through. And a really great piece, again, up there on The Athletic, referencing all of that and referencing a number of quarterbacks that have been in development by Dr. Tom Gormley, who is the head of sports science and director of sports performance at Torque Sports Performance. The story itself is fascinating. I don't want to reveal too much on it other than Anthony Richardson was involved. Anthony Richardson has worked with this man and has been helped through that process throughout his development to this point as a Colts rookie. And we are going to have Alec Lewis indeed at 1.30 to talk on that piece. But I've always known that quarterbacks do more, and, and all players, not just quarterbacks, but all players have more in their regiment, in their training, both in-season and off-season, than what you see from beat riders, what you see from the team. There's so much that goes yeah. into, well, you want to call it the LeBron effect. He didn't start it, but, but you, I'm referencing guys that in the social media age have been public about what they do for their bodies to extend their careers in theory. LeBron has been one of the most active people of the modern era that have been like, hey, this is what I do. Uh, this is a training video. Uh, this is, you know, whatever. Yeah, It was outlined again with Mahomes, if you watch the quarterback series, and, and they showed Kirk Cousins as well, and Marcus Mariota and what they do. So this is not new, but it is an insight into the type of oh, let's just go out there and run or, or you know, just do some sprints or, or make sure you're conditioned on the treadmill. It, it is far more core work, hand-eye coordination. Steph Curry's another one. You've, you've seen stuff that he's done. It is far more about making sure you can put your body through stressful situations so that when the time comes where you need to be superhero almost, you're able to respond properly and this is kind of what Anthony Richardson's from that piece on The Athletic, again, it's entitled Building the Perfect NFL QB, Meet the Mysterious Private Coaches on the Cutting Edge. That is kind of what the end goal is, is to make sure they're as physically fit and ready to take on anything that a day in the life of an NFL quarterback or NFL player might hold. I think for me, the story just drove home the point that this is big, 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 big business. 
And, I mean, you look at how detailed it is. Again, we'll dive more into it when Alec is on in about an hour. But it was fascinating to see that basically, from what I understand, it was kind of like 2K where, like, you know, they have the players come in and put on the, the, the mocap suits or whatever. With all the dots on them. Yeah, yeah. and, like, they, they basically mirror their movements. They'll do that same thing with actual real players and then track how efficient their throwing motion is and then be able to see it charted and say, okay, well, your elbow has to be, you know, tucked in a bit tighter here or your, you know, waist has to turn quicker at this angle. And I'm just kind of spitballing right now, but the story goes into how they track all of that data and then use it to build out different exercises to help you get better. The reason we're talking about this story even to begin with is because one of the stars, or at least a peripheral figure in the story, is Anthony Richardson. And the stuff that he was doing to get better for the season. And I think for me, it was very eye-opening because you realize how detailed so much of this is and how much work you put in to make that throw on a Sunday. And so it's not – and to me, it's not even just practicing that throw. Like when people say, you know, work hard, work on your game, you just picture a bunch of kids going out, you know, to the grass or even it's basketball, you go out to the whatever your local court – work on your jump, work on your game. Mm-hmm. But this is like really, really high level to the point where it's not even like you're working on football things. It's doing these 10 things to make sure that that one thing when you have your ax to do it on the football field all translates. And so I found that fascinating because, again, it's one of those things where you realize how much like analytical data and high-end technology is going to drive the future of the NFL and the future of sports because I do think that we're going to get more and more um, into this. And, you know, Jimmy, when we're old and gray, I think there's going to be some points where we're like, wow, this did not exist. Like, I would not be surprised, seriously, Yeah, if there comes a time where, like, 50 years from now, there's practice facilities that, like, track actual throws in real time in practice to tell you, you know, how accurate a guy is based off of, like, a bunch of cameras or something. Like, it's going to happen because they're moving more and more towards how can we maximize the time we have and make it more efficient as well. Well, you already have that in a lot of other sports. Basketball is one that comes to mind. You think of a company like Synergy Sports, and their whole thing is is tracking yep. everything from your your top speed throughout a game and you know how how your your ebbs and flows and efficiency are on offense and the, the pass that you made on, on any given play then go back and track and look like here's what happened on this particular fast break or here's what happened in this half court set here's what mm-hmm. you did here's what you didn't do because of all the cameras that they have at these NBA games and it's, it's the whole camera thing and tracking stuff is not a new thing you any you see it in soccer. You see it at Wimbledon. Like that, that's the most in terms of like cameras mattering. The first time I really like thought about it as a kid was like you're able to just go to a judge and say no, I think that was in, and they pan over instantly, and it shows you the 3D imagery of no, that shot was right. in or that shot was out. Baseball and that's just a, catch up exactly, please. <laughs> and that's just a small example. But 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 baseball has that too. Whether it's you know I know this gets into the weeds of like traditionalists are like oh we don't need it, but. Spin rate and the amount of movement that you have on a pitch, like that's all tracked by cameras. That's all done in real time and then utilized on the same way that a quarterback would an iPad on the sidelines. Someone is able to, or a pitcher is able to look at it in between innings in, in the dugout. And we're, we're not far off from that 
becoming so far advanced that, yeah, it, it looks almost unrecognizable if we go 20 or 30 years from now. And uh, Bobby Stroop, the Patrick Mahomes trainer, who's not involved in this story, but again, it is this new age of non-traditional training regimen in terms of like what was done in the past for quarterbacks to to make sure that their body is as ready and in check as you want it to be for week one, week two, week seven, week 12, over the entirety of the regular season. There are people that could point to it, and I'm, I'm speaking slightly outside my lane, so I'm not going to say this is directly the correlation, but the national conversation around Patrick Mahomes last year in the playoffs when he had that high ankle sprain was how is he able to still move on this thing? How is he able to still perform at a high level on this thing? Drugs. This isn't, it. and I'm not saying that did not factor into it. I, I'm sure the painkillers and cortisone shots, whatever else you want to use, I'm sure that they definitely helped with that process, no doubt. But the point that you would argue, if you were Mahomes' trainer, or if you're one of these trainers that is helping master the overall body stability of professional athletes, is it's because of what we put him through. It's because, and again, I yep. agree with you. Yep. I don't think that's the sole thing. I think it's also a combination. I'm just saying of, that man was laid hey, up, and hey, they, you uh, know, you're, they, you're not going to hear any arguments from they me. Told that, him, you know, bite down on this, and <laughs> I'm, you're not going to hear arguments from me on that front. But th- that is what this is for quarterbacks in the modern era right now. Is the same way that you've seen LeBron, Brady, guys that have beaten to some extent father time or held off father time for longer than anticipated is the way they took care of their bodies. And I'm not saying that Anthony Richardson is going to have a perfectly healthy career and that he's never going to deal with injuries. But the fact that he is in this group of quarterbacks is, I don't want to say eye opening, but it's so intriguing to me because you're seeing it now, younger quarterbacks coming into the league that realize not life in general, but quarterback life Defensive line life, whatever it is, is short. How do I maximize my time here? And it's a very forward-thinking approach. I like seeing Anthony Richardson taking that type of beyond-his-years responsibility of, I want to make sure my body is right and ready to go. Yep, it's that, and it's also just developing in the current state of who he is as a person, who Mm -hmm. he is as a player, where it's like, how can I clean up my mechanics? How can I become more efficient as a thrower? off-platform throws, you know, and it's all tailored specifically to that player, which makes it much more unique than, you know, obviously whatever usual practice you get or um, coaching you get as a youngster. The one thing that I did kind of pick up on in the story was like, well, I would not have been able to afford this, any of this, I don't know how much it costs (laughs) to be like a 14-year-old getting one-on-one QB lessons, but I was like, that's just not going to be a possibility, and I don't know if Anthony Richardson never got one-on-one QB lessons. He was kind of just born an alien, but... And you don't have to have that. No, you don't. Either. I'm but not saying that's how forward it is. Yeah, yeah, it is a factor, though, because I saw some of the names, and I'm like, wow, your family must be doing pretty good. Yeah. Because there's no way I could just be able to say, hey, Dad, you don't need a one-on-one coach. You'd be like, boy, <laughs> you know, Barry Sanders and, yeah. you know, all these guys, yeah. Joe Montana, they ain't never had so, like, you yeah. know, <laughs> don't get it you know, too, too twisted. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good piece, and I think it's... One of those things that kind of goes back to all that is being put into Anthony Richardson and his development, his focus, and trying to squeeze as much as you can out of whatever he's been given. Because the stuff he's been given is insane. Like you look at his physical body and you look at the stuff that he can do with ease and you're like, okay, 
if we can just teach you the other mm-hmm. stuff, what can we unlock? Because the stuff that he has unlocked right now is already pretty special. Like I said, he had his best day, I thought, this past Sunday throughout camp. Three touchdowns, pretty efficient. Had a back shoulder throw to Alec Pierce for a touchdown. You know, showed some escapability in the pocket. Great pocket awareness, which he's had throughout camp. But that was the day where I was like, man, if this is like your regular thing where you're just toying with defenses, you're the best guy on the field, you're the best athlete on the field, then wow, this could change games. And we talked about it off air, but even with Aaron Rodgers and Hard Knocks, I think Robert Sala said it. He's like, you know, having a quarterback that's that dude changes a lot of different things for your franchise. We're going to take a quick break. Last thing before we step aside, the part about sidearm throws and off-platform throws that you referenced in that story, and this is not just for for young kids that are wanting to play in the NFL one day. This is also for, for fans that see it and be like, oh, how did he do that? When it's Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, whoever, or if Anthony Richardson is throwing sidearm, if that ever happens, it is not because they thought one day under center, hey, I'm going to try this. It is this type of <laughs> yeah. off-field time they're putting in yeah. where they are working on arm angles, off-platform throws. I'll find the episode and I'll reference it later in the show, but if you just watch four minutes of quarterback, it's not just Mahomes, it's Kirk Cousins and Mariota. They show those workouts and it... I couldn't do it. Like I'm, it's 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 insane. Even a fraction of what they're doing, I'm like, yeah, there's no shot. Well, I could because I'm built different. <laughs> I'm him. Eddie, could you do it? Uh, maybe a couple because of my baseball background, but sure. I probably not all of them. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be. Lost I never played there. baseball before. I'd be the greatest thing to ever touch a football if I ever I, I, went down that, that route. I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't get that opportunity. <laughs> That's James Floyd. I'm Jimmy Cook. Still to come, a conversation with Alec Lewis of The Athletic. We'll have him at the bottom of the 1 o'clock hour. Sam Gordon out in Las Vegas with the Las Vegas Review Journal has been following Team USA. Tyrese Halliburton's look nice. We'll get how that world tour in the lead-up to the FIBA World Cup has been going for both Halliburton and Team USA. And then conference realignment. It's here. The Big Ten grows. Zach Osterman of the Indy Star will join us. Give us his thoughts on how it impacts the local angle, most predominantly Indiana and Purdue. But more on that Kareem Hunt potential signing if the Colts go down that route. We come back on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. No word yet officially on what the future holds for free agent running back Kareem Hunt other than he was on a visit with the Colts. And if we get word on that, we will share it with you. Again, The if you're playing like I Spy or, or Where's Waldo, you're trying to look for like a, a key indicator of, oh, there's a giveaway. There's a dead giveaway. Something's happened. Again, your code word today, and this is only if you're on the YouTube audience, so I guess it's more of a, a code lookout, is if you see James dive for his backpack, that is the game we're going to play. If James dives for the backpack <laughs> during segment, Don't speak. that likely means that something, something interesting has happened. Now, and James, it's not only YouTube, Jimmy. You can't forget about Facebook. Oh, can't that's right. I can't, forget about, I can't forget about X. It's Twitter.com. Until Elon decides to go full-fledged and change the URL, it's Twitter. Uh, but on Twitter with the X logo... Uh, because the Twitter the, the Twitter bird is is on dead. the run or dead, who knows that that would work that would work better. Um, it's hiding wherever the X marks the spot. We go go any angle that you want to on this, and of course our fine folks on Facebook as well. But or is that, that is meta? Your, 
<laughs> Still Facebook owned by Meta. It's it's all very simple. It's not there's nothing nothing complicated about anything with social media nowadays. But the Kareem Hunt move, if it does happen, makes sense on a number of different levels for me, James. One, it is more than just a camp body. It is a new when Jonathan Taylor's there, a new number two on the depth chart. And if he's not there, it is a caliber enough running back where I would assume what they would pay him would not be eyebrow raising or potentially rub Jonathan Taylor the wrong way like it would if they would have gotten gotten Dalvin Cook. Right, yeah, that's or, like or, a... Or, or, or went out and gotten yeah. Leonard Fournette or Ezekiel Elliott. Right. Like, Hunt is not at the skill level or the name recognition level of those guys. To me, it, it changes the conversation a little bit. It does, it if does. If it's him versus them. And I think that, you know, obviously it adds a little bit of spice to it if it were like those type of guys. <laughs> this is like a complimentary piece in my eyes. If we're If we're playing the petty game, it would have been give Dalvin Cook one year... Seventeen million dollars. If we were being super petty again, yeah. clearly we're not. And optics somewhat matter still within <laughs> within the industry, but that would have been the ultimate petty move. Absolutely, I think that that's definitely one that would have not gone over well here in real life or on Twitter. We are going to shift towards basketball. Team USA, Tyrese Halliburton, a part of it. And we might throw in some Raiders questions as well. Sam Gordon of the Las Vegas Review Journal joins us when we return. 93.5-1075 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Still here in the DriveHubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison on the ones and twos. We talked a lot throughout that first hour about the NFL and Jonathan Taylor and quarterbacks and Anthony Richardson. But now we're going to pivot over to the other team in Indianapolis, the Indiana Pacers, and their star, Tyrese Halliburton. And somebody's got a close-up look at him throughout Team USA play so far is Sam Gordon of the Las Vegas Journal Review. So, Sam, how you doing, my man? Uh, I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me. How you doing? I'm doing good. Appreciate you coming on, man. Shout out to my boy Andy for setting this up. Uh, when you see him next time, tell him I said what's up. That's my guy. Absolutely. But um, we'll start with, obviously, Tyrese. He had a pretty big game in that exhibition opener. So what do you think of his performance and what type of flavor he gives Team USA? Maybe perhaps a different flavor than anybody else. Yeah, I think first and foremost, you nailed it, right? He's fantastic with that second unit. And one thing they were really able to do, Team USA with Tyrese Halliburton out there, is they pushed the pace. I mean, they got up and down, getting in transition. I think the role he has, and understandably so, right? He's playing with way better players, some of the best players in the world. It's a lot more of a role as a, as a distributor. He doesn't have to worry about getting his own offense uh, like he does with Indy. He doesn't have to worry about being the primary scorer and also distributing. He's got guys all over the floor that can score the ball with him. So the pace he brings, uh, obviously, when, when he wants to score, uh, there are going to be opportunities that present themselves. We know he's a three-level scorer that can shoot from the perimeter, that can get to the basket, and that has a fantastic feel for the game. And that was kind of all on display, uh, except since the scoring uh, the other night. So he was excellent in transition. It seems like he's having a really good time after the game, just kind of discuss you know, what a luxury it is that he gets to focus on distributing as opposed to some of the scoring uh, that he has to do in any and, uh, you know, really presents, I think, a different look when he's out there as opposed to Jalen Brunson, who's, you know, a little bit more methodical in a half court in terms of the way he likes to break defenses down. But 
Uh, a lot of ways this Team USA um, can beat you. And with, with Halliburton the other night, it was out in the open court uh, with him picking him apart with his precise passing. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that here watching the Pacers. He's very much a get-it-and-go type of player. But on those same lines, how much do you think his style of play fits with the philosophy that Steve Kerr has had throughout Team USA basketball, but also with the Golden State Warriors, which is obviously to move the basketball. You have your focal point of Steph Curry, obviously. But they're a very you know ball-movement-oriented team, it seems like. Yeah, you know, without question. And I think you kind of saw that play out uh, the other night in, in the exhibition game, you know, obviously with Tyrese. You know, part of that, the big picture overall, there was very few sticky kind of ball-dominant possessions. Not to say that there weren't a few where, you know, guys <laughs> would isolate a little bit. Of course, that's going to happen, especially, you know, in the exhibition setting. But for the most part, I was super impressed with the way the ball got side to side, uh, the patience that Team USA uh, exhibited when they were in the half court, and, and just kind of the willingness – uh, to find the right matchup in the right play, at the, the right place and time. In terms of Tyrese Halliburton, I think in, in terms of his fit on this particular team, he's playing with Bobby Portis and some of the smaller lineups. But when Paolo Boncaro is in there at center, those guys can move. Those guys can play and get up and down in position as well. And then you're going to have shooters out there with Mikel Bridges, you know, Cam Johnson, Anthony Edwards can obviously shoot the ball, whoever's out there. So I really think it's a well-constructed roster, right? Not the Olympic roster we're going to see. Not, of course, you know, the, the quote-unquote A team. But for, for, but for the group that they have out there, it makes sense with the way basketball is played in 2023. You have multiple lead ball handlers that bring different styles. You have switchability, uh, versatility defensively on the wing, and you have a you know you know a modern kind of three and D big uh, that can protect the rim and Jaron Jackson Jr. So for, for Halliburton and uh, for Jalen Brunson and guys that get to make the decisions about where the ball goes, Anthony Edwards, Austin Reeves to a degree, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tools around them in terms of. Uh, the, the skill sets of the players that they're playing with the roster makes a ton of sense in the ball. You, you have to imagine Steve Kerr is pretty pleased with the way this ball the ball moved the other night. Sam Gordon with us on the Fan Midday Show, sports columnist for the Las Vegas Review Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at by Sam Gordon. Sam, when you look at this roster, I know there's only one game in, but there's been a number of different practices that have happened in their training camp, if you will, in Las Vegas. That's now ended. As we get further along in these exhibitions in the lead up to the FIBA World Cup, how much variation do you anticipate in the starting five? Yeah, good question. I, I think, um, I, I mean, Steve Kerr was, was, was uh, you know, I think pretty open afterwards in that, look, this is the group that worked for now. We might make some changes. I will see. I, I don't necessarily see any reason right now to, to make a ton of changes that starting five. I think the, the, the big move later in training camp, you know, towards the end was, was putting Anthony Edwards uh, with that starting group. Uh, you know, joining Jalen Brunson, Mikel Bridges, Brandon Ingram, and then Jaron Jackson Jr., and he, uh, the other night, I, I think really, I mean, it was a close game in the first half, right? An exhibition game. Don't think you necessarily saw the best effort from Team USA. And Anthony Edwards in the second half, really in that third quarter, set the tone with his defensive uh, this defensive intensity, his pressure on the ball, his physicality, and, and something that the curve spoke very highly of after the game. So moving him into the starting lineup, I think, is, is kind of the last big chess piece, the last big move uh, until, you know, we might see, and then Luster's, I guess, additional struggles throughout the rest of the exhibition slate. they got four more exhibition games until the World Cup actually begins uh, towards the end of the month. But, but right now, the lineup they have, I think it's the right combination of, you know, again, 
switchability and versatility on the defensive end, shooting, ball handling, uh, athleticism, uh, and then size too, right? Maybe not the biggest lineup, but but Edwards in the in the, in the starting lineup gives you uh, like a bigger body on the perimeter in terms of the strength and his ability to to pressure and guard different kinds of, of guards and wings. So uh, that starting group looked good, and and the, and the second unit looked good with with Halliburton in there, kind of leading the charge and really pushing the pace. So a lot of different styles the way uh, that this team that this team can play, and we saw both of them, you know, a couple of them on display the other night, uh, depending on the group that was out there on the floor. So, Sam, you don't have to snitch, but have you seen Tyrese trying to recruit? Because we know (laughs) (laughs) that some of these Team USA gatherings usually lead to nice tandems down the line. So, I mean, wink, wink. uh, Is he getting along well with his teammates? Uh, I would say it would certainly seem so. It would certainly seem to be the case. Um, he's a guy whose game is obviously, I, I mean, it, it sells itself, right? Who wouldn't want to play with a point guard that moves the ball like that, that can score like that, and that's, that looks to get his teammates uh, involved. And, and overall, the chemistry of this group is, is really good. It's a, it's a youthful group. I think the youngest team, one of the youngest teams that Team USA has ever sent into a major international competition, certainly in quite some time since uh, professionals started playing with Team USA. But but the vibes, the chemistry is is fantastic, and and certainly at the epicenter of that uh, is Tyrese Halliburton, who you know whose lighthearted personality was on display. I think kind of throughout the course of the week, and certainly after the game, after the performance he had. So these guys are having a lot of fun, and I would certainly not be surprised. Being again, it's it's a young crop of players, a lot of future stars of the league. If, if there's some conversations being had about making some things happen down the road. Last one for me on the basketball front, but what has it been like this summer to be sort of the hub for so much basketball attention? Obviously, we talked about Team USA being out there right now. You have Victor Wembanyama in summer league, you know, and obviously all the hype around him, Scoot Henderson, others, and then also the Aces, who are having arguably the most dominant season of any professional sports team ever. So, what has it been like to sort of float around from each different facility and see so much um, high level basketball, men's and women's? Yeah, no, it's just it's, it's just been fantastic, right? And, and it, you know, inherently makes a ton of sense with with all the you know the the kind of uh, the gyms, the the, the hotels from, from a logistical standpoint. What better city to, to host all these kind of events in the summer? And then just kind of the timing. It's been one thing after another with the Aces being the, the steady, you know, the steady kind of uh, uh, buoy to, to buoy basketball in the city with how historically great they've been. Uh, a number of future Hall of Famers: Asia Wilson, Chelsea Gray, Jackie Young. Kelsey Plum, Becky Hammond getting inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, you know, the, the different events, Summer League, USA Basketball, of course, the, you know, the club basketball scene, very rich here, uh, a lot of high-level high school basketball tournaments. So this is a basketball town. I mean, everything's here, and I would just, you know, get the sense that it's only a matter of time before an NBA franchise joins the city's, you know, emerging collective of professional sports teams. So uh, it's a great time in the city to be a basketball fan. It's a great time, even if you're not in the city, to come from out of town and check out some basketball no shortage of options and you know the world's greatest players have pretty much been on display uh, men's and women's like you said on a consistent basis the last couple months you said my question my, my next follow-up there sam how far away are we from expansion because it feels inevitable it feels like whenever that does happen las vegas is going to have the first seat at the table how far away are we from an nba franchise in sin city yeah, I would. I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily a hard timeline. I know the NBA wants to wait until they get their new media rights deals mm-hmm. done, and they're out of the CBA's done. Yeah, the, you know, negotiations for that um, can be, begin coming up here. Uh, I think in 2024. So once that gets done, 
Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they move, you know, if, that, if they move pretty fast on, on terms of getting something announced. Now, that being said, uh, an arena is still an issue. You know, T-Mobile Arena, definitely a viable place to play. Uh, there are NBA locker rooms, but that's not that's not the preference for anybody involved, yeah. the Golden Knights, MGM included. Could that work in the short term? Sure. But uh, there is the, Oak, the Oakview group is working on, you know, building a $10 billion um, project that would have, a, I think, a $1 billion arena. Uh, over here a little bit south of the Strip. That would be a potential place where they could play. That group is responsible for the renovations of Key Arena up there uh, in Seattle and the development of several other arenas, you know, pro and college throughout the country. So it's just it's just a matter of time. Uh, I would I would say 2030, but, you know, have a team playing by then, I think is relatively realistic with an announcement sometime in the next couple of years. And we've even heard now Adam Silver go public with, you know, Seattle and Vegas. It feels inevitable. The city has shown that it can buoy uh, pro sports, professional basketball, uh, and and it's it's again just kind of based on you know what we just talked about. All the basketball here uh, makes sense on a number of levels. Franchise to this market. Sam Gordon with us, taking some time on the Fan Midday Show, covers all things sports for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, going back to Team USA for just a second, Sam, you alluded to it in one of your answers earlier. This is clearly not the team that's going to represent the United States in the Olympics, but but it is very much an audition, I would argue, for every player on this roster right now to try to take a step closer to earning a spot on Team USA in 2024. When you look at the roster right now, who is this moment most important for? I mean, I could easily see somebody like Anthony Edwards or or Jaron Jackson Jr. making it comfortably as as a piece within Team USA next year. When we look at the rest of the roster, though, who is this stretch of time at the World Cup most important for to making the Olympic team? Oh, geez, that is a that is a um, tremendous question. I think you you know the, the guy like you said, Anthony Edwards. This feels to me um, at this juncture like he's kind of ready to take on, take on the, the the face you know take on the role of the face of this team. He was excellent the other night. He has the, obviously the personality for it. And, and when you take a look at this roster, out of the twelve guys on the team, I think has the highest upside in terms of being you know. A, a, a number one on a championship team in the NBA. Still only 22 years of age. And that's obviously no disrespect to any of his Team USA teammates, but he has the highest upside. And this, I think, from 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 that standpoint, I think this could catapult him. This this can be you know part of the runway uh, that helps launch him from a very good player into you know a, a potentially very great player uh, down the road, right? But but I, I think uh, there's the backup big spot. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that settles, right? I, you know, you, you think a Team USA is traditionally the 12 best players in, in the world, but that hasn't been the case. It's obviously a lot of, you know, the, the best American players, but in previous iterations of USA basketball, there's been a guy like Bobby Portis, right? Think about Tayshaun Prince on the Redeem team, right? A, a high-level role player that does a number of little things well. So I think he's in a position where, again, maybe not the first big you necessarily think of, but he's a guy that was excellent the other night, does all the little things uh, that, that might be able to play his way into potentially contention for a roster spot Team USA moving forward. I think Paolo Bontero, another guy, right, just just coming off of his first year, uh, the rookie of the year uh, performance that he had in the NBA this past season. What does this look like for him in terms of being part of Team USA long term? He got a lot of minutes in backup big spots. Uh, and this you know, Team USA, could this be something that really helps accelerate his development as well? I think kind of big picture, Mikel Bridges, uh, Jalen Brunson, Tyrese Halliburton, those are guys that fit the FIBA model, that fit the Team USA model, and certainly guys I think that are 
you know, probably uh, going to have the opportunity to earn their way back uh, next summer for the Olympics. But for the young guys in the second unit, it's an opportunity to prove that they can fit the international uh, model of play, that they can play with stars and, and find a role with stars. Because there's going to be, you know, you would imagine Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, maybe Steph Curry, other guys, other high-level guys on the team next year. Who can play around those guys and give up maybe parts of their game uh, that they would have, uh, that they would go to in the NBA to play to, to play uh, with other stars in FIBA. That's what I think we're gonna we're gonna learn here in the next few weeks. So big opportunity for everybody involved, um, like you mentioned, uh, but especially guys in the second unit. I think they have an opportunity to earn their way back on that Olympic team next year. Sam, I will be remiss if I didn't ask about Josh Jacobs because whenever I mention his name here in Indianapolis, it's in conjunction with Jonathan Taylor. So I know you're not like on that beat every day, but what is the sense around Jacobs and his status for the team? Because as we know, the season isn't getting further away. It's creeping closer. Yeah, um, fortuitous timing with your question. I'm just pulling up here um, to, to Raiders practice. Let's they got go. Practices the next couple of days. <laughs> so the, the primer before the before the game, before the practices with the Niners. Uh, but look, he's missed. It's it, it just he's the. I mean, he was a rushing champion last year. He was a captain. Uh, he's a leader in the locker room. He's well liked. He's got the kind of personality that that guys connect with. It makes guys feel at ease. And you heard Devontae Adams come out publicly say they miss him. They, they, they wish he was there. That, uh, I think, whether guys are going to say it or not, I mean, how could you not want, you know, arguably the best player on the team and the best running back uh, in the league in camp when you're, you know, you're trying to set a culture, you're trying to win games, so on and so forth. Um, that being said, everybody knows this is a business. Guys are able to compartmentalize what, what his situation is and focus on, you know, going, going through training camp and preparing for the start of the season. But it's going to be interesting what this, what this thing looks like. I mean, look, I expect him to come back. I think you know, there's no real, no reason for him to be in training camp. He hasn't signed the tender. He's not getting fined. He's going to make all his money so long as he shows up for week one. So if you're Josh Jacobs, you know, no real incentive to go to training camp, especially, you know, given kind of what the dynamic of these negotiations have been like. So I'd expect him to be there, but you're playing with fire. I think big picture, uh, forget necessarily the position or anything like that, but when you're not taking care of a, a captain, a leader in the locker room, somebody that's well-respected, and, and, and even if you give him a little bump, uh, is are there going to be long-term hand, like handicapping captains with this team, with where they're at, given how many holes they have elsewhere and how far away they are from serious contention? I'm not necessarily sure you would. So I get it. I get it from both sides. It's the reality of the business. It's the situation that we're in. Running backs, guards, inside linebackers, you know, fullbacks a long time ago – certain positions you know just the value changes uh, as the game changes but 1600 yard guy last year first team all pro only 25 years old been extremely durable uh, makes all the sense in the world why his teammates would want him out there and, and until he's there definitely a, a void in practice again without one of the best uh, players in the league but we'd expect him to be there week one too much money on the table we've seen Saquon Barkley Tony Pollard other guys you know show up and kind of understand the situation would expect him uh, to follow suit and then at 26 potentially set him up for, a, for another big payday um, somewhere else, depending on how things go this season. Well, look, Sam, I really appreciate the time, man. Have fun at Raiders practice. Hopefully they have some AC going. Is it outdoor? I mean, the heat out there is different, so I don't know. But be safe, my it's friend. Oh, is, it, is it outdoor? Just out of curiosity, is it outdoor? Yeah, they mostly practice outdoors. I mean, sometimes they'll they'll, they'll pivot to the indoor facility, but uh, but practices for training camp are are usually really early. today's a little later 
but usually 8.30 in the morning to try and beat the heat. And I say that the key word there is try, because even at 8.30 in the morning, it's almost 100 degrees out here. So they're two bucket hats. working around it, and this is what they have. Yeah, the season right around the corner, hopefully uh, hopefully cool, cooler days ahead. All right, Sam. Well, next time I talk to you, please don't melt in between then. So I uh, appreciate you coming on, man, and you have a good one. Uh, I, I won't melt. I appreciate it, guys. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, and take Sam. care. All right, that was Sam Gordon, Las Vegas uh, Review Journal, sports columnist, kind of just floats around, does a bunch of things for them, a lot of great work. And I think the last part he said about Jonathan Taylor, you know, being one of the best players on the team, a team captain, I'm actually not, it wasn't about Jonathan Taylor, it was actually about Josh Jacobs. You could swap out the names, and the sentences he said could have been the exact description you would give for JT. One of the best players on the team, team captain, you know, teammates love him, all those things. But as we know, the situation here is a lot different than the one over there because he hasn't reached that franchise tag part. He has one year left on the rookie deal. And unlike Josh Jacobs, he will get fined if he doesn't show up every day. So that's why the whole him not showing up yesterday was kind of a thing, at least until we got confirmation that it was about the ankle was kind of alarming for me, Jimmy, because I'm like, wait a second, is he digging his heels like I'm just not going to show up at all anymore? So who knows what it really is, but the bottom line is, as Sam alluded to, Josh Jacobs, Saquon Barkley, Tony Pollard, they were all in better positions than uh, than, uh, JT so far. Well, and the main reason they were in better positions is because their rookie contracts were done or their contracts were done to the point that they were either ready to renegotiate for a new deal or – they were going to get tagged and all of them received the franchise tag and the money's different. Like I, I don't think that $4 million is anything to you know shake a stick at by any means, or that, you know, a fan of the Colts or Jonathan Taylor should look at it and be like, Oh, well the money that he's leaving behind is too great. I think it does matter. I think it matters from an optic standpoint as well, but you're looking at $10 million set up for the season on a tag versus whatever it is, $4 million on this last year of the rookie deal. They're in such different situations, Taylor versus what Pollard and Jacobs and Saquon are going through because of the money and because of just the timeline that they're on. And I understand what JT's tried to do. I get it. You want to try to get in front of this thing because you know Everybody else has tried to wait till the contract is done and then fight it, and it hasn't worked. So maybe the thought is fight it before the contract, the first contract's over, and try to force their hand. The problem is, though, as is quickly being revealed, we all knew it, but I think as he's learning, there's no leverage to be had here to a point that the Colts will be flexible on things. Okay, fine. You want to go work off site? Okay, fine. We won't find you. Here's an excuse absence, whatever. But if you're not there week one, the conversation and that friendly nature is going to change very quickly. And I think I, I JT think so. knows that. I think so. And that's the waiting game that we're in right now. We just don't know if and when he'll be back. But like you said, week one will reveal a lot of things if he's not there. Because at that point, it does become, in my opinion, less – Um of a buffer for you to just say, oh, he's rehabbing, he's getting better, he's fine. Like, no, he's not here now. He's not here. So that'll be a factor that we have to definitely address. And then at some point, and we haven't had a chance to do this, but if he isn't available to play, but he's around the team, he will have to talk at some point. 
I mean, if the guy's not on IR or something like that, he's going to have to talk to us. And so whenever that happens, of course there's going to be maybe some truth revealed, but even if it isn't, just the tone of his voice, the manner in which he answers things will be, will be very revealing since we haven't talked to him since this you know trade request became public. So I don't know. Do you show up and say, hey, I don't want to be here for this guy, but I'm going to play for him? Probably not, but... Something has to be said or done between now and September 10th, which is the season opener. And the easiest way, if both him and Jim Irsay had not gone full nuclear mode on their war within the media, and I know it's quieted down for James's sake, knock on wood yes, there, Lord. a bit right now, <laughs> but it's gotten to a point where JT can no longer show, in, show up into camp and the comment be, I have one year left on my deal. I'm going to finish this out and it come off as truly genuine. Oh, like, yeah. like, 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 no, like, no, like, no, like no we're all talking about like PR spins and whatnot and what is believable and what is, you know, okay. I, I, I guess I could see that happening. That's what I would say. Like if I was John and Taylor and I knew it wasn't going anywhere and I'm coming back to camp and I'm going to get that question. The only other answer besides no comment or I'm here to play or dodge it or pivot from it would be the safe answer, which is I have one year left on my deal. We're gonna, I've come to my senses on that, or a better way of phrasing that. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna figure this out. I I owe I owe the team the obligation to finish the contract. He could say that, and he could do that, and everybody like, all right, well at least he's playing, but it's not gonna come off as fully believable anymore. So we talked about this with a few other guys on the beat, and I've pondered this myself. I think the best way he could frame coming back and playing this season after all of this back and forth is to say like, I'm here for my teammates. Oh yeah, that, that, that's the other. That's the other angle. The, yes. I'm here for my teammates. I'm here for angle. my brothers. There you go. Yes. You dropped that brother word yes. in there. Yes. And all the fans are like, you know what? We really respect you, JT. <laughs> all some, all the mean stuff I said about you on Twitter about you being selfish. You know, you're here for you know your team and trying to help them. We like you. We love you. J- you know, Jim Irsay should pay you. Now you still might not get paid, but I think that's the safest PR route is to say, here for my brothers. I want to do my best for them. Play for the guy next to me. All the cliches you hear every year in football. And I think that would probably be his best course of route. But if he doesn't do that, I mean, if we get actual truth, Lord, which is what I'm always rooting for. I mean, it's more work on my part, obviously. But, I mean, if we get an honest answer or just honest D of any kind from him would be great because, like I've said, JT has always kind of given the Boy Scoutish answers and the last time we spoke to him in June was the first time he ever stepped yeah. clear of that and talked like he really was thinking of himself as an individual entity before the team, which I know some listeners might be like, that's the whole problem. No, it's really not. Like, you have to do think about yourself to some degree. And like I said, with Michael Pittman Jr., for example, he's been very smart about playing it sort of down the middle. Yeah. You know? Every game is an audition. Every practice is an audition. The, you know what an audition means? Other guys looking at me like, hmm, they might, they might pay me. So he's been very smart and more diligent about how he goes about it. I think what we've talked about previously where JT was way too extreme in one regard, being team friendly, to way too extreme in the other regard where it's like, 
you know, pay my money or else. If only there was one key thing that had happened during that time, like like a like like a change of, of personnel or, or like representation or or, or something in, in his life that that so might that might have coincided. Like I I can't think of let's what talk it would about be. this. So he hires a new agent, which everyone is kind of latched onto, <laughs> but I don't think it really matters who his agent is. Now his agent didn't help by going out. I disagree. Going, going against Jim Irsay. This is going to be. We might. We might need to pocket this. Do we yes. need to get oh, to let's Alex? Do it. Yes. Let's, 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 because because let's, we might. We might have our first. Oh, real... I'm, about, I'm about to smoke Eddie. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm always right. He's always wrong. Well, but but unfortunately, so. not that you need me by any means. You can do it on your own. You might be one v two here, depending on. Uh, oh, well, what, I got I got two hands. I, I mean, y'all get this work either way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll table that for likely one forty five, assuming we we have time with it. If not, we'll get to it on two thirty of where things shifted within Jonathan Taylor's mentality and if there's a correlation between that and the hiring of his agent. But we'll go back to Anthony Richardson and we'll get to a great national piece that goes over the way quarterbacks and athletes in general are going further to take care of their bodies and prepare them for life in professional sports. That was a story on The Athletic done by Alec Lewis, who joins us next. Still here. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Here in the DriveHubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. We're going to finally get to the story we alluded to earlier from Alec Lewis of The Athletic, who we have on the line. He's the Vikings reporter. He actually took a dip into Colts land and uh, was down there in Florida with Anthony Richardson from what the story told me. So, Alec, first, before we even get into the story, how do I sell my company, our company, on sending me to Florida for stories? Because I'm very down for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, first, thanks for having me. I apologize for missing earlier. It's, uh, I was, I, I, I'm, the time zone thing is like the bane of my existence and has been forever. Um, so it was good to see that I'm still, I still haven't learned my time zone. Um the Florida thing was, it was really random. Um, and like on a serious note, I, I wasn't uh, sure initially if I was going to go down there, but the more I had conversations with people um, for the story and within the quarterback space, the more I was like, you know what? I want to go see this. And, and reality is like, I didn't even know Anthony was going to be down there that day. I thought, it could be Brock Purdy. I thought it could be John Wolford. I thought it could be any number of guys who I talked to or interacted with for that story. Uh, but turns out I showed up to the field, and then uh, Anthony walks up with the box of Jordan cleats, and, uh, and we're ready to roll. So it was fun. Yeah, I was going to say Hercules approached you, and you were like, oh, wow, yeah. he plays for the Colts. <laughs> so, um, Alec, we I read through the piece, thought it was fantastic, and – one thing I want to kind of start with is how have you seen this sort of like technology driven data and, and stuff kind of manifest itself into the NFL? Cause I mean, if we're talking about quarterbacks of this generation that's starting out, I would say, you know, the Anthony Richardson of the world, Bryce Young's, they're probably more used to this, but throughout your research, how have you seen it kind of pivot to the point where they're using so much data and, you know, uh, high-level technology to track every part of a, a player's movement to maximize yeah. it on the football field? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, I mean, like, to, to walk you through it and to walk the listeners through it, so I covered baseball for three years. I covered the Kansas City Royals 
um, which was a very traditional, old school, not forward thinking, data minded organization. But throughout the course of that coverage, like I, I was fascinated by like the question of what are the teams that are most forward thinking in terms of player development doing? And it, it led me down a, a space of biomechanics and biomechanical analysis. So I learned a lot through that. And then as I, as I started covering the Vikings last year and then hit this summer, I was curious, like, what does the quarterback development space look like? And it turns out football is way behind baseball, even uh, in terms of how they're integrating data and biomechanical analysis in player development. I thought that was so fascinating. I'm like, with how much money this industry is, that is in this industry and with how much is on the line for these teams and these players, the fact that they are behind even baseball to me was kind of mind boggling. Um, and so it, it, it led me down the rabbit hole to try to find like who is using this data and how are they doing it? And, and I guess, to put it simplistically, like the people who are doing this at the highest level are realizing that you can, uh, through motion capture analysis, figure out how a guy's body moves. And then I think the more we know about how the body moves, the more we know about how guys generate force and, and, and how you train the body to, to pattern effectively to be able to move efficiently and, and operate the right way. And, and that obviously led me to, to the people I spent time with. And, and I think for Colts folks to know that Anthony Richardson has been working with these people who are at the forward, at probably the most forward thinking level of the space has been fascinating. And I think the Colts in general, as a team and organization have brought in people to, to um, experiment this. And they're one of, very few teams within the NFL that have. I mean, the Philadelphia Eagles, I would say, are probably the most forward-thinking in the space. I think the Baltimore Ravens are there. I think the Los Angeles Rams are getting there. But the Colts are, are only early adopters in this, and I think the ramifications of that are hard to even peg as you think down the road. You know, Alec, I don't disagree with you, but poor baseball, like the – Football's taken over long ago as the top sport in America, but now baseball has become a warning sign of, well, if they're doing this, then we are we are far behind where we need to be. Um, as I read the piece, I kept looking back because I had seen uh, a couple weeks ago I'd gone through the quarterback series and – you know, I've, I've, I'm a Chiefs fan, so I followed Mahomes, so I knew about his offseason regiment. But you referenced Bobby Stroop in the overall piece on the stuff Anthony Richardson was doing in regards to different trainers that have looked at off-platform throws and training your body in those stress-inducing situations. How similar is what fans might have seen if they watched the quarterback series with Mahomes and Stroop to what Anthony Richardson and what, what clients here in this story are taking through their training regimen? Yeah, I think the main difference, I would say, with, with what Patrick Mahomes has done with Bobby Stroop is Bobby moved up from Texas where he is based to Kansas City, and he lives there, and he has somewhat of a synergy and kind of an access to the team and to Patrick Mahomes at a level that I don't believe Anthony Richardson has with Tom Gormley, who he works with in Florida, and Will Hewlett, who he works with in, in Florida. And so I think – that would be the biggest difference. But I, I will say this, and this is how I would describe it to, like, the layman's person. Um, and we talk about baseball, but it really goes, like, the, arguably the most forward-thinking sport in the space in, in, in terms of movement and enhancing 
uh, a guy's skill set is golf. And I know that might be weird for people to think, but what golfers have done for a long time, because they are their own entity and not working with, with a specific team, is they have surrounded themselves with their caddy, with their swing coach, with their putting coach, with their body guy, with their – and so I think what you've seen, and Patrick Mahomes – I mean, obviously Tom Brady worked with Tom House, and, and Patrick Mahomes has done this with Bobby Stroop, but the more time has passed, the more I think all of these quarterbacks at the highest level have realized that they have to create a team around them of experts, and that is the throwing expert, that is the body movement expert, that is in some capacity – the, the cognitive playbook side of, of, of reading defenses and having an expert, uh, the psychologist. I mean, her cousins visit with the, visits with the psychologist. And so I think Bobby Stroop and what people saw in that quarterback series is a good foundation for, I think, how this thing is going to trend for, for guys who play this position at the highest level. Now, to pivot away from the quarterback position, obviously – your franchise gap, grabbed headlines when they released Dalvin Cook, who is still not employed at the moment, could be very soon, obviously. But how have you seen Minnesota sort of attack that position, knowing that we're going to have to make some changes, obviously, to keep their core intact and to try to keep building the team towards what they hope will be a fruitful, more fruitful playoff run this season? But what have they done to sort of make up for you know, a loss that they obviously feel that they can't make up for? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's Dalvin's situation, is, I mean, as all, all of these running back situations are, it's, I mean, it's fascinating, and I think they're all very different. I mean, in Dalvin's case, um, I think specifically, I mean, he's, he's kind of a home run hitter who has gotten older, has taken a lot of hits, uh, and I think the team just felt as if, rather than the home, running, home run hitting ability on the ground, they, they, they are seeking efficiency. I think they believe if they can get in second and six, if they can get in third and two, the playbook is more open for the team to to. to I mean, it, it keeps stress off of Kirk Cousins, off of Justin Jefferson to, uh, to, to 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 shoulder the burden. And so I think while Dalvin Cook, it, it, I mean, can obviously run the ball effectively, still I think they felt like Alexander Madison, who has been the backup here for a while, would would maybe fit the more bouldering type of back who would get you four yards every carry but 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 not have the home run hitting ability and so I think um that's where they 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 they've lied I mean I think Dalvin specifically has still not found a team and I think it 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 is in part because his representatives and his camp have been seeking a contract worth an, an amount that teams have not been willing to pay I mean I know other teams are interested in Dalvin I know the for example the Miami Dolphins are very interested in Dalvin, but not at the price tag that he's seeking. I think that was really what, what, what in the end, for the Vikings, it was like, we, we, if we're building this team with short-term flexibility, which has been their, their conversation, that they had to do that with a running back that was uh, less expensive than what Dalvin Cook was seeking at that time. Alec Lewis with us. Covers Minnesota Vikings for The Athletic, and of course you can find his national story, building the perfect NFL quarterback, meet the mysterious private coaches on the cutting edge that dives into Anthony Richardson, a handful of other quarterbacks that are going through this unique and and different approach to make sure their bodies are right and training themselves to succeed at the next level. Alec, James brought up an interesting point that for like teenagers or, or high school level kids, there's no doubt that having this type of 
developmental tools or personal trainer is a is a big hurdle in terms of accessibility from an income standpoint for the average yeah. person to be able to do that. So I don't know that we'll ever reach those points, but for rookie quarterbacks or, or, or other athletes in the NFL that want to take care of their bodies in such a forward approach or go this route that has worked for other NFL quarterbacks, how far away are we from it becoming commonplace for shortly after getting drafted or shortly after having enough money to play with, so to speak, that all NFL quarterbacks or a majority of them have trainers like this or that take this approach, maybe not that have the access that Stroop does with Mahomes, but that are as active in the development of the quarterback as we see with some examples in the NFL right now. Yeah, I think I think we're pretty close because I think the more information that exists that like the, the Netflix documentary that shows Bobby Stroop's impact, like stories that that like the the one featuring Tom Gormley who works with Anthony Richardson. I think the more uh, parents of kids will be seeking out this type of information. Like I think about there's a kid in, in Florida named Colin Hurley who is uh, he's won two state championship high school quarterback four star committed to LSU and his dad as as most quarterback dads can tend to be is maniacal in his pursuit of wanting to to find the optimal situation for his son to have the most success at the position and so I think the more uh, information that exists about the, the benefit of how a body moves in terms of trying to throw the football effectively the more you'll see uh, the highest level seek that I mean I can also say that there are things that that are there are people and certain platforms that are in the process of being built to to help democratize the space and make it more accessible for the people and, and younger kids who can't access the highest level, which I think is is obviously a really good thing as you you, you want to lift the lift all boats for everybody. I mean John Wolfer, who's an NFL quarterback with the Buccaneers, has partnered with with Tom Gormley, who I wrote about to create kind of a platform um, to where kids can, can video themselves, and, and they're in the process of that. I know Greg Rose, who, who works for the Titleist Performance Institute, is creating a certification for coaches to help uh, football coaches and quarterback coaches train guys better and, and think more about body mechanics. So I think that the space, is, as you can probably hear in, in how I'm describing the things that are going on, it just feels so untapped, and I think – it transcends just the quarterback position. Like I had a conversation with somebody about pass rushers in general, and they're like, for years, coaches have told pass rushers that they have to be in these positions to attack the quarterback. It's like, well, what if their body doesn't move efficiently to, through those specific techniques? What if, if, if they, they place their leg in a different way, they could actually get to the quarterback faster, even if that's not what has been taught for years? And so, again – the more I think about the space, the more I think there's just a lot to be untapped in terms of player development and football. And I think the teams that are most forward thinking in that space will probably separate themselves as time moves on. Well, all I heard was that my dad failed me by not <laughs> giving me a quarterback coach. But um, Alec, look, man, I appreciate you coming on. I'll have to get your thoughts next time on that debacle that happened last year in Minnesota, which was the most unbelievable game I've ever been a part of. But um, I won't bring it up too much, I guess, for the listeners out there who are still scarred. 
But uh, going forward, my man, you keep doing great work, and I'll make sure to keep uh, – actually, I'll reconvene with AR to see what he's saying about, you know, these quarterback coaches he's had. So uh, thanks, man, for the assist. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me anytime, James. You keep it up, too. It's been fun to, uh, to, to read and watch. I think that that team and that offense is going to fascinate me. Um, I, I would say I've heard really good things as well about – the development of Gardner Minshew um, and and he kind of aligns with some of this space as well in a way that hopefully you could tap into a little bit but no thank you guys for having me I appreciate it as far as the Colts game last year it will probably <laughs> exist as the craziest I've ever seen probably for the rest of my life but things happen when uh, situations were what they were last year um, so yeah thanks for having me and uh, keep in touch alright man you have a good one that was uh Alec Lewis covers the Vikings for the Athletic. A lot of fascinating stuff, obviously, on the quarterback front. Had to get in there with the game from last year that scarred yeah. everyone. I mean, but, you didn't have to, but... but no, I had to. Because in my mind, I'm like, if I'm still feeling this stress and pain <laughs> from having to change all of my story, y'all going to feel it too, because that's just how petty I am, so... Hey, I, that's that's Can't very that's far for the course. I am consistent, man. I appreciate, I am who I appreciate I am. the consistency. Every day I am. I, who I, I, am. I admire and appreciate the consistency. That's James Boyd. I'm Jimmy Cook. We'll take a quick break. Still to come, top of the hour. Zach Osterman covers all things college athletics, particularly as well on the Indiana Hoosiers side of things for the Indy Star. Big 10, soon to be Big 18 in 2024. That's not a rebrand. <laughs> that's just the amount of teams that are going to be there. We'll look at how it impacts the Hoosiers and Purdue. A little bit later, that's top of the 2 o'clock hour. More after this on the Fan Midday Show. We ran a little long. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Last segment with Alec Lewis. Conversation will be up a little bit later wherever you get your podcast to search the Fan Midday Show. Of course, you can get it on 1075thefan.com. With Eddie Garrison, James Boyd, I'm Jimmy Cook. We'll take a quick break when we come back. Top of the hour. It's next segment, in fact. Zach Osterman of the Indy Star will take us through all things conference realignment, how it impacts our favorite schools, or at least two of the top schools in the state, Indiana and Purdue, in the Big Ten Conference, 18 members strong in 2024. That conversation with Zach Osterman of the Indy Star when we return. Inside the drive here. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Com studios, Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, along with Eddie Garrison. It is the Fan Midday Show. Around this time last week, we were starting to see the back and forth of will they or won't they in regards to the Pac-12 conference and how much power Arizona potentially to the Big 12 would hold with what would happen with Oregon and Washington and who would make the first move and maybe there's a last-minute media rights deal and then ultimately <laughs> the Hunters pounced on the hunted. <laughs> the Hunters pounced on the hunted and the Big 10 got their riches in terms of two new members and the Big 12 got their riches in terms of Three new members. One of our favorites, he covers IU Athletics, as well as college sports at large for the Indy Star. Zach Osterman joins us now. Zach, first off, thanks so much for the time, as always. And I read your piece regarding where 
the lessons of what just happened with the Pac-12 can be learned for member schools of not just the Big Ten, but of the SEC anywhere of, if it can, ha- if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. I want to get both your takeaways on this because my initial reaction was a selfish one. If the owners are going to be selfish as an Indiana alum, I'm going to be happy to an extent that my school is not outside looking in right now. The Big Ten was forward thinking and they were aggressive. They are alive. The Pac-12 is dead. But the other side of that coin, as you mentioned in your article, is I don't know if it would necessarily hit Indiana or Purdue, but it could hit a number of teams in this conference with the next wave of you're in now, but you might not be in three, four, five years from now. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and I probably didn't do as good of a job of kind of elucidating what I was trying to say in that, that piece is, is, is that you mentioned. Um, you know, for a while, we kind of, people like me would talk about conference expansion, realignment, contraction, um, consolidation, whatever term you want to use. And we would, you know, say that it was about TV reach. It was about media reach. Could you add more big time uh, television markets? Could you add, obviously, maybe more recently, meaningful brands when you see the SEC poach Texas and Oklahoma, when you see Indiana, or excuse me, not Indiana, the Big Ten, forgive me, um, poach, obviously, in particular, USC and UCLA. But these all are kind of symptoms of the wider issue, which is that for a while now, college athletics has just kind of been beholden to essentially what its major television partners tell it either in word or in action they want. Um, And you would understand why college athletics would, would want to strengthen those relationships. That's the single largest revenue stream for these conferences. The problem is that you start to get to a place where eventually, as with anything, there, there becomes a point of negative return. There are those those television contracts aren't climbing further and further up um, the way they once were. Cord cutting has cut into cable revenues. Streamers haven't really filled the gap from a, a, a revenues perspective and a consumer spending perspective. So you're now at a place where, and we saw this with the Pac-12 try, having to try and take its um, its its uh, it's media rights to Apple and Apple TV, you're in a place where either you have to do something risky like bet on streaming or you have to um, basically take the money from someone else. And that's what we saw happen with the Big 12 and the Big 10 last week. The problem is if you follow that line of thinking through to its conclusion, let's make everything more streamlined. Let's make everything more efficient. There's not an infinite amount of money to go around the way that it once seemed like there was. Let's just, you know, let's keep trying to trim the fat off the edges as much as we can. At what point do we stop classifying this by conference and saying, well, these conferences are safe and these conferences aren't? And do we maybe see conferences start to wonder if, or or television partners or whomever start to wonder if it's time to streamline out some of the members of some conferences that do not provide as much value, as much inherent sort of, um, you know, efficiency. And that's a really craven way of thinking about college athletics. There's an extent to which we've always thought about college sports through the lens of money. Ivy league stadiums were build, building Ivy league schools were building stadiums in the 40 and 50,000 pre-world war two. So let's not act like this was some, 
This has never been a consideration, but it has gotten to a point where it feels like it is harming the sport and where nobody is fully safe. Zach, when you talk about harming the sport, some of the reactions from athletes who play non-revenue sports, I'm sure you've seen them as far as softball and gymnastics or whatever the case may be. How have you seen maybe the reaction on the IU side of that and being, I guess, subject to the decisions that are made primarily for football? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, there's been a lot more discussion of that basically really just in the last two days. I mean, Gene Smith came up with, came out today talking, I think in his retirement announcement about how he thinks there needs to be a new structure for governing college football. I think a lot of people were intrigued and I, of course makes, it makes too much sense to actually work, but by this sort of idea <laughs> Kelly had about basically separating separating football from all the other sports and just playing a conferenceless football schedule among the Power Five schools, and essentially his point being travel is not as big of a deal for football. Football travel always happens on the weekend anyway. It's only once a week. The issue you're going to get into, you're talking about, you know, like I think there were some Oregon softball players, maybe some athletes from Rutgers who were both sort of um, you know voicing some of these concerns on social media about. If I'm if I got to fly four and a half hours, play you know a weekend softball uh, series, and then I got to fly home, like I'm going to be going straight off the plane to class. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't you know I I, I went to Oregon or wherever because I wanted to be close to my family. Now all of a sudden you're telling me I'm going to be playing Illinois and Northwestern and Nebraska and Minnesota. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think that again, what I do wonder. Because I think it, it, this is something, I mean, Indiana's going to have to grapple with it just the same as anybody else. And you're going to get to a place where, you know, a big part of the reason, at least one of the major reasons why you are seeing, frankly, this dash for money is that, number one, schools recognize that the sort of, you know, the the, the, the cable and TV revenue sort of streams that had really exploded over the previous 10 to 15 years are starting to shrink again. And so you're trying to get into the conference with the best, you know, the best position for a, a strong new media deal. And also you want access to the college football playoff. That is going to be one of the areas that uh, of revenue that opens up next because there is such intense interest in it because it's obviously expanded once. And I think we would all be shocked if it wasn't expanded again at some point in the not so distant future. Um, you know, let's say then I forget what its current term is, but let's say the next, you know, five to 10 years maximum. And you have potentially a really large new expense coming down the pike, which is sharing revenues, particularly television revenues with student athletes. And that's, where I think in particular a lot of this is coming from is, is schools essentially saying we have to make sure we've got as much money as we can because it's not like you're going to start from zero when you start sharing revenues if that is what happens. You're going to have to figure out how to cut something else. Well, the problem is if in the effort to maximize your TV deals and all that, you keep adding schools that require a, a ballooning travel schedule or ballooning recruiting budgets because you're going to have to go to different parts of the country to recruit athletes or whatever it might be, then all of a sudden, at what point are you just sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul? Um, I think it is interesting to me that the, the sort of growing chorus of people that have been calling for this idea that if football is going to govern 
if football is going to be the catalyst for such a dramatic departure from what we would consider sort of like recognizable college athletics, then maybe it is time to find a way while still obviously allowing football to make the money that, that helps, you know, well, it's far and away the biggest revenue generating sport in the football bowl subdivision. Um, you know, finding a way for football from a governance perspective, from a postseason perspective, even to some extent, probably from a, a television and media rights perspective to go and do its own thing and allow some of these, you know, basically certainly everything that's non-revenue, but probably even a sport like men's basketball, where you have to play a lot of weeknight games and it's not going to be practical to play, you know, 8 PM Pacific time in Los Angeles and then get on a plane at 11.45, or let's say 5 p.m. Pacific time in Los Angeles, get on a plane at 8.45 Pacific time, which is 11.45, let's say, you know, Bloomington time, and fly four and a half hours home and get home at 5 a.m. That's just, that's not practical at all. Um, Maybe we find a way to essentially let football be and do its own thing that doesn't harm the rest of the structure. I don't know exactly how to do that. If I was smart enough to, Lord knows I'd, I'd take it somewhere. It would be more useful, but um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's really complicated. I'm not going to lie. Zach Osmer with us covers college athletics and IU athletics for the Indianapolis star. I have to take some time with us here on the fan midday show. Zach, it felt like you maybe alluded to this in your piece. And if you didn't, and I misread it, then, then I just want to get your opinion on this flatly. There has been concerns about as these conference realignments occur that maybe down the line, whether that's seven years from now at the end of the rights deal, whether that's sooner than that, that some trimming of the fat might occur. Do you feel like that's possible? And if so, when I look at this, and maybe it's because I'm I live here and I'm I'm blinded by it. I don't view IU and Purdue as obvious casualties. I look at Rutgers. I look at Nebraska. I look at Northwestern. I look at maybe Maryland as maybe if trimming of the fat was to happen in these conferences, specifically the Big Ten, that that would be the choice. Now, they might look at IU and Purdue and say the same thing about those schools. I, I don't know, but am I wrong in thinking that, that there's some type of safety for IU and Purdue down the line? And what do you think about the idea of fat trimming occurring at some point within conference realignment? I mean, I, I think it is more likely than not. I think, and, and again, this is where I, I think I was, this is something I was really trying to say in what I wrote, and it didn't, it didn't, quite, um, didn't quite come through. But the point I was trying to make is if an entire conference can be, you know, wiped out by this, as I think we all sort of feel like is probably going to be the, the sort of final determining fate of the Pac-12, um, then there's absolutely no reason to think that there are any sacred cows. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. If a, you know, if maybe not necessarily through words, but certainly maybe a combination of words and action, actions, your you know your, your your broadcast partners, your media partners, your TV partners are kind of saying, well, we don't. You know, the the market essentially said it didn't want the Pac-12. Dean Smith said today that Fox put more money on the table. For the Big Ten, its primary television partner, Fox, is, Fox being the Big Ten's mm-hmm. primary television partner, to add Oregon and Washington without 
depleting the annual payout for any current Big Ten member. That means Fox was willing to pay money to make something happen that it would have it will have known was going to effectively kneecap the Pac-12. And it's not a huge stretch to say essentially Fox was willing to fund the permanent and, and final undercutting of an entire conference. So what's to say if, you know, these revenues continue to kind of at very least sort of stagnate, grow slowly rather than, you know, that 10, 15 years ago, this was ballooning for everyone. Everyone, every time a new TV deal came up, that, you know, the, that conference got the biggest, richest TV deal in the world because they just took the last two that had been negotiated and said, we want something better than this. And it just kept climbing ever northward. The problem is cable has been cut into by streaming. Streaming has not replaced, you know, basically cord cutters have not replaced in terms of revenues to streaming partners and broadcast partners the gap that's created by people cutting the cord. And so there's not as much money to go around. What happens if that continues? And at some point, you know, let's say, I don't know, let's just hypothetically say the next casualty is the ACC and the biggest ACC schools find a way to get out of the, the ACC grant of rights. And then the Big Ten and the SEC and maybe the, maybe the Big 12 divvy up all the ACC schools that have any real agency and the few that don't fall away. At some point, this line of thinking gets you to a place where the broadcast partners just keep saying, let's make this more efficient. Let's make this more streamlined. Let's get rid of the, the brands, the schools, the programs, whatever words you want to use that don't help as much, that don't add much to the bottom line. And again, that is heavily driven by football. Basketball is a consideration. March Madness is a, a makes more than a billion dollars annually. No one's going to throw that in the trash. But football is driving the bus here by orders of magnitude. And if the, the approach we're taking is essentially let's just keep cutting and cutting and making this more efficient and making this just a more sort of like efficient moneymaker – at some point, they might run out of other people. They might run out of softer targets, and they might start saying to conferences, do you think that there are you know, brands, programs, again, whatever word you want to use, in your own conference that aren't doing much for you? Could they be moved to one side? And to be honest, and, and you know, Indiana fans listening probably won't like me saying this. <laughs> Purdue fans listening certainly won't like me saying this. Indiana and Purdue would not be in – particularly strong positions in that case. From football standpoint. I want basketball to matter. I, I, I get that, and to an extent it will. But it, it is – this is so football-driven. If we got to a place where, let's say, you were just taking the 32 best programs in the country and starting some Super League, and I have, I have my doubts about that idea for a variety of reasons, but let's say we got there. That is absolutely one of the things that people smarter than me think is on the table with all this. You know, neither Indiana nor Purdue is probably getting into a 32-team league of the, you know, a league of the 32 best college football teams in in, in the country. Um, certainly, college football brands in the country, and that's a scary proposition. And that's where I come back to the idea: that just if it can happen to an entire conference, why wouldn't you think it could happen to you? So, Zach, have, do you think we've not seen the last of it, but we're just moving away from like the true traditional rivalries when it comes to college athletics. Because I mean, that's 
what I grew up on, that's what I think draws you to college athletics is that you hate that school over there because, you know, they're the rival school. They're right next to you and you see each other all the time. But it's hard to me to fathom a rivalry if you're, you know, on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. No, I think that's I mean, I think a big part of the argument against a lot of this is is not just that we want, you know, that the college fans should want tradition over money or, or college football programs college athletics departments should prioritize tradition over money. It's more the idea that college sports needs to be very careful because to your point, rivalries, you know, a a sense of sort of cultural identity and and regionalism and and parochial quirks. These are the things that have always set college football apart from the NFL, from, you know, major league baseball, from the NBA, like you, you, and, and it all works because you get a little bit of it, you know, at the pro level, you get used to see the best athletes, in whatever sport it is, playing each other all the time. And, you know, and that's why, like, in baseball, we added interleague play. And then this year, you saw baseball move to a, a more fully balanced schedule because the idea was, increasingly, people didn't want that out of professional sports. They just wanted to see the best players playing each other as often as possible. I, I, I was born and raised in Atlanta, and, like, I can tell you when the Angels were in town two weeks ago, everyone was furious that they weren't going to get to see Shohei Otani pitch. So like it, that that is what people want out of co- out of professional sports, and maybe to some extent it's what people want out of college sports. That's what's driven. That's what drove us toward the BCS to some extent. It is certainly what drove us toward the playoffs and what has prompted an expanded playoffs. So I'm not saying that this isn't this isn't something college sports should embrace at all. But you have to be careful at a certain point that you're not destroying your brand in an attempt to innovate it. And college sports has always been driven in large part by the idea that it gave a certain sense of cultural identity to to people and to places. And you played, you know, if you went to Illinois, you played Northwestern every year. If you went to Indiana, you played Purdue every year. If you went to Michigan, you played Michigan State, you played Ohio State, you played Notre Dame. It mattered not just because people said, oh, it's important to beat Ohio State, but because it was something different than what you got out of being a fan of the lions or the tigers or the red wings or whoever. And you could basically have both of those things. If you, if you sanitize or modernize whatever term you want to use college, if you professionalize it, frankly, that's probably the best word for it too much. Then I think you start turning people off to a lot of what, you know, what kept, people really engaged with college athletics, which is what made it different, which is that sense of familiarity and against that, that, that sense of sort of parochial cultural identity. Last thing on my end, Zach, Zach Osterman with us covers college athletics and IU athletics for the Indy star. Before we, we talked about frat, fat trimming earlier from a standpoint though, of still adding and still trying to gobble up as many teams as possible it would appear, at least from national conversations, that the Big Ten maybe is not done. What is next for the conference? I know that there's been rumors of Stanford and Cal maybe to the ACC. There are rumors about maybe they would try to jump on the Big Ten train a couple months ago. What is next for the conference in terms of expansion? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say insofar as two weeks ago, nobody thought this was on the table. And then, you know, some of the you know, the, the, the PAC 12 media deal sort of came to a head and that prompted Washington and Oregon to get scared and kind of come back to the big 10 and engage at you know, substantially lower terms than, um, than what you would normally expect, just basically to find a safer landing spot. I, I do think, um, 
you know, it's from the Big Ten's perspective, short term, I think a lot of this is going to be driven by revenues. And, you know, a big part of what clearly a big part of what made the Washington Oregon move work was that A, Washington and Oregon were willing to take greatly reduced shares of the annual media payout through the life of the current deal, which only just started and runs for seven years. So basically, Washington and Oregon were, were prepared to take a seven-year, you know, deep discount on what everybody else in their new conference is going to be getting annually, including USC, USC and UCLA, just to get from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten for financial reasons, competitive reasons, whatever it is. And then the other piece of this, which I think really just kind of emerged today when Gene Smith said it, is Fox was willing to put a little bit of extra money in the pot to cover that, you know, and to, to make that doable for those two schools for the term of this, this media rights deal. I don't think, you know, there are some, there are some, you know, what, what, I don't know, golden geese or whatever term you want to use, whatever cliche you want to use. Notre Dame is obviously the big one. There has been absolutely no mention recently of Notre Dame being interested in the big Ten. If anything, the moment it seems like Notre Dame is, is really prepared to sort of entrench itself in its independence and, and, and back basically its its long-term plan for revenue growth. Um, but anybody else that was added would need to get to a place where it was obviously financially viable for those schools, but also financially acceptable to the Big Ten. And that, I think, essentially means it's not going to cut into anybody else's revenue stream for the life of this current deal. Now, I'm not saying the Big Ten's not going to add another team for seven years. I do think that this particular round of expansion, you know, last time USC and UCLA was a, a bit of a response to some overtures from the California schools, also a bit of a response to the SEC being aggressive with Oklahoma and Texas. This one, I think, was a lot more prompted basically just by the willingness of Oregon and Washington to come in on greatly reduced shares. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody else out there like that. So the Big Ten would be able to go back to its broadcast partners and say, you know, kick us even more money than you already are so we can cover this too. So for the moment, you know, it's, it, it, you've got to have the schools that are willing to play ball at maybe a lower, a lower, for lack of a more artful term, price point, frankly. And then you've also got to have the appeal of that move be something that the television networks say, yeah, we'll put a little bit a little bit more money in the pot to, to make sure that this isn't going to cut into the revenues that were already promised to the 14 schools or I guess 16 schools that were in the the initial media rights deal anyway. So again, I'm not saying they won't move. Um, the last you know the last move came completely out of nowhere. Um, but what I will say is I think it would have to be a pretty compelling case. And I don't know that there is one out there at the moment other than Notre Dame or potentially if something sparked the ACC into falling apart. Zach, really appreciate you having you on. I'll keep in mind that I guess one benefit from all this realignment is that your flight miles probably will look a little bit better depending on <laughs> where you would go <laughs> down the line. And um, hopefully, you know, when you have your map of the Big Ten, it doesn't change too much um, over the next week like it did the last week and a half or so. But again, thanks for coming on, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That was Zach Osterman covers IU, all things IU for Andy Starr. And I thought he made a lot of good points. And at the end of the day, as much as we want to, you know, argue about 
the tradition of it all, money drives everything. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like we're, I joked about it, you know, about the Big Ten expanding, keeping up with your map and all that. But with the Pac-12, I mean, does it make it to the end of the year? It feels like they're just uh, been left out in the cold. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the final year of, of active members in the conference before it drops down to the, the joking Pac-4, as it's been referred to. Uh, with, Which is with, insane <laughs> to me. Like, you just play each other over and over and over again. And <laughs> I mean, they'll, 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 they, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, you play other teams, but I'm just saying, like, your, your, your conference opponents, there's three other ones besides I, yourself. You, you, I think you and I both know, as, as joking aside, that... Some are going to go to the Mountain West, yeah. some like or more than likely anyway. Some might get an olive branch from the ACC, but they're, they're, it's not going to be. A, I'd be, <laughs> I would be shocked if it is a four-team conference next year. I think it's much more likely that you see either schools go independent, you see schools trying to join a, a I guess at that point, a lesser conference or join a conference that doesn't have nearly the same allure that the Pac-12 did that the Big Ten does that the sec does yeah but yeah i mean that that won't play out but the other thing with all of this and, and i'd mentioned this earlier in the week you can be and feel sorry and sad for college football fans out west i have buddies that are in that same boat buddies that, that went to stanford that went to cal that that, that feel all of this of like we're out in the cold and what's going to be like in 2024 you can feel all of that while also if you were a fan of one of these schools in the Big Ten or an alum of one of these schools in the Big Ten, be thankful in the same way that the, my friends out West are angry at Pac-12 commissioner and leadership, you can be thankful for the Big Ten right, and their the forward thinking with this because you have a place in 2024. Your rivalries schedule might impact some of them, but your rivalries will like will likely largely be left intact Illinois Northwestern, IU Illinois, IU Purdue, Michigan, Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State. Those are fine for right now, but it is a real conversation of it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but how long does it become a conference battle where things are always growing and how long before the top tier of football in conferences, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia. When you look at all of them in their respective conference, how long before they look down at the bottom of the standings and say to themselves, do we need you? And I'm not saying that's tomorrow, <laughs> but like th- that's a very real reality that is not it's no longer an impossibility. A couple years ago, you might have thought, that's eh, crazy. No way. Everything is on the table yeah, now for change. To be honest, I could have never imagined that it would be like it is no. today, like no. this time last year. I had no clue this was coming down the pipeline. And to your point, the only schools in the Big Ten, at least, that should feel comfortable about whatever happens in the future is Michigan and Ohio State. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of any other ones that are like, just for from a sure. Football, just from a football standpoint, again, like I agree, if you're valuing basketball and you're valuing March Madness, and Zach mentioned it, it is still a billion-dollar industry, oh, is March Madness on itself. Yeah. And that still matters, and that'll always be prevalent. But yeah, if you are looking around the Big Ten, there is a clear separator of these are real football schools, and these are schools that have football programs. Yeah, And that's ultimately what might happen someday down the line. I don't want to see it. I know that fans of those schools don't no. want to see it. 
I but still think the, the Rutgers, and, and I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but I still think uh, somebody like Rutgers and maybe Nebraska in terms of like teams that I, I don't view with the same Big Ten pedigree as I would the member schools we've mentioned, like IU and Purdue. Like I think there's a gap there, but nobody is safe unless you are a true power in college football yes. for what could happen five to ten years from now. Football is king. Yeah. I mean, that's just the bottom line. We look at it even in our own market. The Colts drive every single headline, you know, three, four times over before we get to the next topic. And that's just because football is king. I mean, we could talk about football all day, every day, but we wouldn't do it if it wasn't, you know, what people wanted to hear. And I think that's what we've kind of seen in college athletics. And I do feel for the athletes who inevitably will have to deal with the ramifications of sports they don't play. Like if you're a volleyball player or if you're a softball player or a gymnast or a swimmer, Mm -hmm. you have to deal with the travel and things like that. And it's not as luxurious and it's definitely not once a week. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to see how that plays out when we get some of those, you know, first person accounts of, okay, this is my first year doing this. This is how it went. And this is how, you know, I was maybe neglected in this whole thought process. I still want to see USC play at Mackey, and I still want to see UCLA play at Assembly Hall. So I know we joked about maybe basketball doesn't get impacted. I, I was still looking forward to seeing those matchups, so I, I oh. do hope that they hey. that they they end up happening in some capacity. Hey, just go ahead and invite me. I'm with it. <laughs> I mean, I, I could definitely you know enjoy that kind of bout at, at Assembly Hall for sure in Mackey. James mentioned it just a few moments ago. The Colts are what ends up stirring most drinks around here. We had a conversation earlier that was interrupted regarding Jonathan Taylor. We'll dive into those weeds when we come back on the Fan Midday Show. Earlier in the program. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We discussed Jonathan Taylor in terms of when this whole I don't want to call it PR focus, but the way he has handled his contract negotiations, when did that shift and who is to most blame for it? Is it all Jonathan Taylor? Is it first round management and his new representation? And James, we had to go to break, but, but you were basically I was saying put foot to no, I'm joking. That, that, that you felt like maybe it's not all on his new representation. Maybe it's just... Uh, a, a new me, new JT type deal. No, I, my point was that it's been overblown who his agent is. The main sticking point in all of this is that he hasn't been offered an extension at all. Sure. So that's why he probably changed representation. Hey, my nice guy approach was not working. I'm going to go to this guy and try a strong arm or deal or whatever because he's more like outspoken. It did not work, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because they were never going to offer him an extension. Eddie, do you want to go first? I will if you don't want you to. You can go first. Okay, so I don't disagree with no, you I got with my that. left hook ready for you. And Eddie, <laughs> I got the right one ready for you. I'm going to see some rumbling. Do they, do they have names? No, they don't have okay, names. Okay, all right, we'll make sure. No, okay, no, we get the job done. That's good. That's all yeah. that matters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I agree with you that it's clear that he was not happy with where things had been with previous representation for a contract extension, so he went and got new representation. That that makes all the sense in the world. That's not my sticking point with this. My sticking point is you could you see it all the time when you change representation, have the agent handle everything. You don't have to do that. You could sit back, go not necessarily no comment, but say we're we're in talks, we're in negotiations. My agent is handling that versus going on the offensive the way that he did, and. 
as one very talented reporter pointed out on The Athletic oh, just last month. Don't use this against me, please. He, he references that the 24-year-old switched agents since the last time he had spoken to the media, and his tone had completely shifted from the nonchalant demeanor that he had in April. You wrote that, by the way. Great reporting on your part. And I say all that because <laughs> I think that the reason his demeanor changed is because first-round management said, we need to be more aggressive on this, and not only that, we need to do it on all fronts, including you, and I think that's bad advice. But how, though? And that's my only thing. Like, How is how, it bad advice, or how did it happen? How is it bad advice if you were never going to get an extension anyways? Because What's the harm in saying, hey, I would like to get paid aggressively versus saying it nicely? Because I think there's a difference between looking at your agent and saying, you're failing to get me a contract, you're not aggressive enough, and then hiring an agent that you think is more aggressive and having them do it versus doing that same thing. And then the agent looks at you and says, I need your help on this too. You need to change your demeanor. I think that, and I'm, I've never been involved in contract negotiations. I'm just going off of all the stories we've read throughout time of, from reporters. Well, I've been and in from, negotiations and I got million dollar deals. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it's all... A lot of it is work behind the scenes. Some of it you can strong arm and you can manipulate the media a little bit, but oftentimes you let the agents do the dirty work so you don't take a PR hit with it. Right. And you know what? We're looking at this with like 2020 vision. They say hindsight is 2020. No one ever thought he took a PR hit when he first came out in June and kind of took that stance. Sure. It snowballed. Right. And the reason it snowballed everyone hasn't mentioned yet is because the owner of the team came out and came at running backs in elephant in the room. Hey, your running back is one of those running backs. That's the most incendiary part of all of this. It was not JT and the agent. The agent responded, not a good idea to do that. Also, who among us doesn't know like Drew Rosenhaus and professional agents that like to get in Twitter fights on, on uh, with owners? I mean, who who among us doesn't see that as commonplace? Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but my point is, that to me is more of an inflection point than actually switching agents or whatever. Because he was going to change his, his stance. It only got contentious and it felt like it got personal after Ursay's initial tweet, whatever night that was, and then the agent responds JT has his piece sure. that's when it got to me more muddied but at the end of the day who his agent is doesn't really matter it does outside of like in the actual meeting rooms I don't think it really matters I mean I, I get it, it that fans are like arguing about it and the optics of it but he's chomping at the bit he's ready to go I mean, he's, go ahead. he's in the blue corner he's he's just waiting to, waiting <laughs> yeah, to jump he's about to catch this right hook I got you with so, the left now here's the I'm, reason I'm why I say it matters when you're dealing with a player at a, at a position that is devalued such as like Jonathan Taylor is and you have a guy who's not really experienced in terms of dealing with NFL ownership and negotiating contracts within the NFL the only two players that Jimmy and I can name off the top of his list right now Shaq Leonard and David Njoku those are the only two players one of them got a big contract the other did not or well he got an extension but I don't think it was the contract that he first desired he did get tagged uh, one year and then he got the extension this past year but when you look at the respect factor of this between the NFL, the the general managers and the owners with agents, and you go to a guy who doesn't have that rapport yet, and you're already kind of in a murky situation 
because your previous agency couldn't get you any contract negotiations started, then you go to this guy and he completely changes the tune of how you are and viewed now as a human and toward the team. I think that's a large part of this. And if he goes with Drew Rosenhaus, I think there's a possibility this could be totally different solely because of the fact that Rosenhaus has a lot more street cred within the NFL, the GMs, the ownership, and the respect between the player, the organization, and himself in organizations. That's actually a very good point. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll, I, I beat Jimmy down pretty good. <laughs> you gave me a, a, a nice uh, a nice you know jab back. But no, I, I, I think that's fair. But at the end of the day, my whole point is, if Jim Irsay is saying, no, I'm not going to pay you at all, no matter who your representation is, it doesn't matter who the agent was. Now, I do think that Drew Rosenhaus probably would have handled it with more just experience like you alluded to. I you mean, mean he wouldn't have just went in a Twitter feud? Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, we don't have to go too down, too far down memory lane, but remember Nick Ngakwe got into an argument with an owner as a player. So, like, yeah. it's just not a good idea to ever have those back and forths. It doesn't bode well for the future. But my whole thing is I don't know – I don't know if it ever set in for JT and maybe this is part of the agency and maybe, you know, Eddie's winning this argument. My goodness. But where you get promised by your agent, hey, I know your previous agent didn't get any negotiations, but hey, come here and I'll get it done. Yeah, I'm I'm just not sure how it went down. And I'm not sure if that reality ever set in that you're in a market that is depreciating daily, it seems like. And so whatever you thought you were going to get back in. April when you said I signed a deal whatever whatever just assuming it was going to get done is not the reality now like have you had just that real yeah look in the mirror moment where you're like man I'm actually not in line for an extension I'm not going to get it and I think I talked to you all about this last week unlike Quentin Nelson and Shaq Leonard who obviously uh JC's representation now has helped get a huge deal he's not coming off a first team second team all pro season so the optics of it doesn't really help you either. Now, again, I still think, I do think, if he was coming off back-to-back all-pro seasons... We wouldn't be having this conversation. He would have been extended by now, yeah. and it's like, okay, like how could you not? And if he wasn't, we it would be all against you know the team. Everyone would be like, okay, the team is just messing with this guy. But you're coming off of your first significant injury in the NFL. You're not coming off Pro Bowl season. You're not coming off an all-pro season. And you're at a position that is being devalued more and more why do you think you're going to get rewarded a year early? That's just not going to happen. So at the end of the day, I do think that at some point we're going to be standing there with Mike's in front of JT and he's going to be saying, I'm playing this season because I don't see how else you really have a way out. I mean, the team could move on from you, but I do want to throw this out there that in my brief experience with Jim Irsay, if there is an owner that is kind of unpredictable, it is him. Like he sure. can do things that don't always, I guess, on the surface make sense, or he can, it can make you scratch your head or whatever. So that's another thing. Is to your point, Eddie, is like, no, I guess which owner you're dealing with because he's not one that's ever going to, I don't think, you know, concede or back down if he feels convicted in his stance. And in his stance right now is smart. We talked about it all summer, and I'm finally on train with it where it was like, or I'm bored with it. You don't have to pay this guy early, and as much as he wants to be maybe upset about it, you don't have to do it. And they still could reward him, but I just don't see it happening. I think he's looking at this like, 
man, I'm not going to get paid really this year, and I'm going to go out there and put my body on the line for the potential to be tagged. So, But at my point, I'm like, could you look at the tag as like, could that be your biggest payday? Because if, you, if we're looking at it now, I mean, to kind of pivot away from, like I said, beating Jimmy and losing to no, Eddie. No, no, I, I still have one more because um, I, I don't appreciate no, you trying no, to divide me and Eddie and also... Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, look, look, I, I admit that I took some lumps from Eddie. But in all seriousness, I do think that we have to look at the tag now or kind of view it as your way to get paid. Because if you look at the running backs who don't get tagged, they don't get anything. Yeah. So, I don't know. The last thing I'll leave us before we go to break is ah, this last word stuff yeah, he ain't winning this y'all he I is know. losing I, I, I know i gotta, I gotta <laughs> apparently make up make up ground that's been it's been created in front of me uh to piggyback off of what eddie and i both said <laughs> whether you want to blame jim ursay or not his tone changed from april to that's true after that's that agent fair. was hired yeah and true. i blame it on bad advice and I blame it on a pathway of what Eddie said. His agent sold him a bill of goods of, I can help you get this, but you need to do this. You need to change your demeanor. And if it's not that, then JT was a phony to the media for a year and a half, and this is who he really is. And I don't want to believe that. I want to believe the former. I think all players want to get paid, and they're all a bit fake to everyone. When it's to I mean, the, the game is the game, right? You yeah. Gotta, so like, I wouldn't hold it personal. Like, sure. get paid, JT. Like, I would feel probably the same way as you and, and i don't and i don't think that that's what happened but that's that's the other pill that you maybe have we to won't find out until this. we talk to him honestly no we don't and even then it'll be interesting to see how he, <laughs> that's true. How he handles everything we'll take our final break we come back we have some bets for you to close out a wednesday on the fan midday show we'll be right back welcome back fan midday show uh the official cards came in 29 28 29 28 and 29 28 uh the winners by unanimous decision, Jimmy and Eddie. That was just a, a poll we just did on Twitter. Oh, wait, whoa, uh, whoa. I'm just saying. Whoa. I don't know. Ain't no way in the world. I'm just saying. I don't know what to tell you. That's just. No, no, I'm no. I'm going to do a poll for my burner account and just vote for me and close it right after. So, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it happens. You know, sometimes the, the greats, you know, they take a loss. Muhammad Ali is not the greatest because he was undefeated, you know? <laughs> now, I will say this. I am not, obviously, in the same level as Muhammad Ali, a true which, legend. Which part? With your with your fisticuffs or with your uh, verbal oh, sparring? I, okay. Look, okay. I am a. 140 pounds. I am very diplomatic when I get out of <laughs> out of these uh, this studio. I am not one to fight at all because I would lose most of the time. Yeah, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I understand. There you go. We're going to now shift gears towards our daily segment with betting. A nice bounce back day yesterday. Maybe Eddie will have one for us. He he went to the table early and didn't share. A little frustrated with that. We'll get to it in a moment. Let's get some bets. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Explain yourself. What do you mean explain myself? You had you had a wager active. We love in-studio bets and neither on-air or off-air. Did you share with us that you were riding some? I would like know. to Can't tell you. It. Can't jinx it, Jimmy. Oh, come on. Without the Brian No intro, man. I, 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 I understand. It, but, uh, it, Reds, Marlins in action right now. I took first five under... Four and a half. I had to sweat it out, and I didn't think I'd have to sweat it out solely because of a Joey Votto infield single. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, next time, pass it along. Or at least pass it to James so somebody knows. I mean, I get it. You're worried yeah, about Eddie. me being some jinx. So selfish. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, I'm so confident in myself not being a jinx. Uh, go ahead and invest the bank. Reds minus 1,600 money line right now. Uh, they're up 4-1. to one. There's no shot that they lose this game with where they're at right now and what the 6th and 7th inning. You can probably take that one to the bank. Uh, I feel, feel fairly confident in that. Wouldn't you agree, Eddie? 
I don't know. The bullpen still hasn't won it yet. <laughs> that man's over there like looking stressed. Okay, for our real plays of the day. It's we're only take- the sixth inning, Jimmy. There's <laughs> still three left. For our real plays of the day, we're going to take the Toronto Blue Jays toward the money line over the Cleveland Guardians. Also going to take the Chicago White Sox toward the money line over the New York Yankees. And this one has been in the plays for the last two straight days, and it's 2-0. and We're going to ride it one more time to the bank. Eddie, do you know what that bet is? Are you going Texas Rangers minus one and a half? I am going Texas Rangers minus one and a half. Who are they playing? Oakland Athletics. They are playing the Oakland Athletics. It's not quite the automatic bet that is a messy anytime goal scorer in MLS, but it has been kind to us throughout the summer because the Athletics are not legitimately fielding a professional baseball team. Uh, Eddie, do you have any other bets this afternoon for us? Nope. Nothing? Zero? Zip? Not Zilch. Uh, James, I don't like any of these. James, I know you don't partake, so we'll pivot away from bets and shift to something that is on my calendar for when I get home tonight, and that is I didn't get an opportunity to watch the opening episode of Hard Knocks. I know that that will always be a, 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 a antenna upward for Colts fans because they've experienced and lived it, albeit it was insightful at times, and... and It was a ride. We can say that at a minimum. (laughs) You both saw it without giving too much away. What did you think? What were your your main observations from the opening episode of Hard Knocks featuring the New York Jets? The star is obviously Aaron Rodgers. He's the biggest draw in that first episode. But it was very interesting to hear from Sauce Gardner and Garrett Wilson as far as their development going into year two. So excited to hear from them, especially when they started going through actual games because you didn't see much – you know, on-field work from them outside of training camp. So excited to see what they have next. And I'm glad I'm not covering a team on Hard Knocks. So I have to write about it every time they air an episode. <laughs> Selfishly. Eddie, anything that James did not hit on there? That no, you... I thought it was a solid episode. I didn't think there was anything spectacular. I thought it was a good starter episode. I'm just interested to see if they if they uh, start to peel back the curtain a little bit more. I know they did with Rodgers a little bit and got a little bit of Zach Wilson and Robert Sala briefly but and Nathaniel Hackett, but I'd like to see them go deep dive into some players. I saw something, a clip about Aaron Rodgers. I think I don't know if he was talking with Robert Sala or who it was, but about like sleeves that Zach Wilson had on. But that's the only that's the only like viral oh. clip that I really saw. Um, but again, I'm you either love Hard Knocks or you forget that it's happening, and then you either don't care or you'll watch it. So I mean, it's it's I won't call it niche, but it is an aspect of the NFL that sometimes gets lost. I'm happy they went with the Jets because I mean the Rodgers of it all. A yeah. It's and of all the teams, they're the most interesting that could have potentially been selected for it. Absolutely, in my opinion. I mean, you go where the story is, and the story of this offseason has been Aaron Rodgers, and it could be of this season if they really go out there and do what they feel like they're capable of doing. We're going to have James back in here on Friday. Again, no official word enough. The Colts have moved forward to sign Kareem Hunt yet. Stephen Holder had mentioned a little bit earlier on Twitter at Holder Steven that there's no it. word on that front made to this it through point the in show without news. You made it through the show. I don't we didn't do a live show prop bet on that, but there were no lunges <laughs> to the book bag. There were no even fake outs there. So maybe it'll happen, hopefully for your sake, before Friday's show. If not, we get to play that game again. Oh, goodness. Like, just do it whenever I'm not on here, please. <laughs> <laughs> Always appreciate having James Boyd in here. Brian No will be back in with myself and Eddie tomorrow. The Ride with JMV is up next.